Today's episode of the Triple Threat Podcast is dedicated to the life, memory, and career of Scott Charles Bigelow, otherwise known as Bam Bam Bigelow. He's controversial. 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, he's outspoken. You will tell your kids, and your grandkids, and your great-great-grandkids. And he tells it like it is. That you watched a great athlete named the franchise, and he was the greatest world heavyweight champion of all time. He is the franchise Shane Douglas, and you are listening to the Triple Threat Podcast. Prepare to get your ass franchised. Washington chopping down a cherry tree. 
I'll be there in a second, Vince. I am not in the backstage area at the Manhattan Center. Wrestler's <laughs> honor. <laughs> I, I got to ask you this, John, because I'm going to welcome you in here now. Hey, John, I love hearing this from you. Have you talked to anybody today who is backstage at Raw uh, in your plethora of two-man power trip of wrestling dealings that you have going on a daily business, uh, daily basis? Uh, no, I actually I have not, thankfully. Um, I have not gotten any word. I did talk to somebody that could not make Monday Night Raw, so that that's an interesting uh, guy that will not be at Raw. But besides that, no, nobody. Now, i, I got to jump in there because, Shane, John is going to be, I guess John's teasing it. We're going to talk about it a little bit later, but let's just mention it now that we, we mentioned it last night. We went out on social media and tweeted out that we have now a third guest that has been added to our TMPT con taking place in May in Richmond, Virginia, at the beautiful Holiday Inn. You can head to tmptofwrestling.com for more information on TMPTCon 2. But, John, joining Shane and joining Eazy-E, Eric Bischoff, the uh, former executive vice president of WCW, would be who? Big Sexy himself, Kevin Nash, will be joining the fray. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Very nice. Building a, quite a cadre there, guys. <laughs> three, could we have any three more interesting guys with three just absolutely uh, amazing journeys throughout wrestling? You got Shane. Obviously, we know your story. We hear it on, on a daily, you know, weekly basis here on the show. We're very uh, thankful for that. Eric Bischoff, obviously, and then Kevin Nash, who you know very, very well, and obviously. His, uh, you know, his resume writes itself, and as we get closer and we start building up TMPTCon, hopefully you know, we'll hear a little bit more from Kevin Nash in the coming weeks. But on this show, we're recording this show on a Monday night, and like I said, it is going on during the Raw 25th anniversary. And we mentioned last week this show is going to be dedicated about 95% to Guilty as Charged 1999, featuring the culmination of one of ECW's greatest feuds, which was Taz versus then world champion Shane Douglas. But Shane, before we get that rolling and before we talk, talk, excuse me, tackle one big hot topic for the week, I got to read you this quote that I wrote down out of the mouth of Shane McMahon on the beginning of the Raw 25th anniversary. And I would love to get, this is my journalistic side, get your hot take on this quote. <laughs> Shane McMahon mentioned in the opening moments of Monday Night Raw that the McMahon family would personally like to thank all the superstars who have ever stepped through the ropes of Monday Night Raw. So, Shane, on behalf of the McMahon family, I just want to thank you for your contributions. <laughs> they didn't have a little footnote up at the bottom saying, except Shane Douglas. <laughs> I'd be, I'd be, <laughs> if, if that was really the case. You know, it's the damnedest thing. It's, what are we on, January 22nd? And I'm still waiting for my WWE Christmas card. I don't know. It must have gotten lost in the mail somewhere, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, Shane McMahon was in the ring to mention that. Him and Stephanie awarded uh, Vince a plaque that commemorates uh, Raw's 25th anniversary that then led to uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin coming out, and then you got your classic uh, Austin Stuns McMahon in New York where it happened for the first time 20 years ago. So that was cool. But, yeah, the McMahon family just wants to thank you, Shane, and uh, they sent me as the advocate to read you that quote. So I, uh, I'm very happy to do so. On this, 
Not so chilly night in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania this time of year. My heart is warmed by that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I feel like face. that could almost. Well, I feel like that could almost lead to a podcast shutdown. And you see where I'm going with that, a podcasting shutdown. And before we just – I want to jump into the government shutdown very quickly. We also have to mention that this coming weekend, we will all be in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Shane has a huge match with House of Hardcore on Friday night at the ECW Arena. And then Saturday is the giant Icons convention. We'll mention it at the end of the show again, but we want to just get that out to you now that while you're listening to this, go check out all the happenings in Philadelphia this weekend and we are looking forward to that. But, yes, let's get to the government shutdown, Shane. I've been dying to hear your take on it. If you want to explain a government shutdown to the, uh, to the fine folks, please do. But what do you think about all the developments this past weekend? I know uh, a lot of people working a lot of late nights to cover this uh, government shutdown where people don't want to work. Yeah, well, my, my first takeaway from this is that, you know, this, this – countdown to the shutdown you know this as if the planet was going to stop turning or the sun wouldn't come up in the morning or something was so ridiculously overdone uh by all the fake news outlets that you know this was first of all we we were heading into a weekend uh you know and, and there was this this mantra out there amongst the fake newsers that somehow you know we were all in jeopardy if if this thing didn't get done and I've been one of those guys over the, you know, the handful of times that there've been government shutdowns that said, let it shut down. It, the longest shutdown was for a couple of weeks, two, three weeks uh, back, uh, I believe under Bill Clinton. And, you know, no big thing happened. Nothing in my life changed. You know, my bills still came in the mail and I still paid my bills on time and I made my shots on time. So I think it was just a ridiculous meme by the fake news outlets out there to try to put this pressure on that, my God, if this happens, it's Armageddon. It's the end of time. Uh, and that'd be the second Armageddon in the last few weeks because Nancy Pelosi said the tax cut was going to be one. Uh, but, you know, th- this whole thing, you know, the, just a very ab- abbreviatedly go through it. Uh, you know, of course, the Democrats want the Dreamers, uh, uh, the DACA recipients, uh, people that were brought here as children, not with no other, none of their own volition, uh, illegally, and uh, the Democrats want amnesty for them, even though they won't use that word. And uh, uh, Republicans say not so fast, and there's sort of a standoff of that. Trump has made it clear. President Trump has made it very clear that he wants a deal made to keep these people from being deported. And he, like anybody trying to facilitate any kind of a hard deal, this hasn't, immigration, by the way, hasn't been touched since Ronald Reagan tackled it in 1986. So, you know, if you do the math, that's a hell of a long time ago. And the reason is because it is such a tough issue that every Congress between then and now put it off, every president between then and now put it off, they used, to, they used to call abortion the third rail of politics. Well, immigration has become the third rail of politics. You touch it, you get electrocuted. Trump is trying to tackle one of the most serious, complex problems in our government today, one that's been put off for decades. I believe that when he rescinded the DACA executive order uh, signed by President Obama, 
that his intention was to put all the pressure on Congress to make them come up with a solution. Now, what's noteworthy here is March 5th is when the, the, the current DACA deal dies. And if no solution is found before March 5th, then they may, underscore the word may, start being deported. I find that highly unlikely. But that would be the, the trigger date, March 5th. The last week when the government ran out of money, as they've done, I can't even remember how many times in my life, uh, you know, it's a wholly different uh, subject. But when they ran out of money last week and this looming uh, deadline was, uh, it was hanging out there, the Democrats decided to try to play hardball to force the DACA recipient uh, issue into the budget negotiations, uh, what's called a continuing resolution, to continue the funding of the government. Now, why they would try to do that is pure politics. And the reason I say that is the March 5th deadline. This is January 22nd, and back at that time, it was January 18th, 19th, 20th. And we were nowhere near the deadline. And yet the Democrats thought they would play bluff poker and put this as the linchpin issue that they couldn't support continuing resolution to keep the government open without that. And in a nutshell, President Trump and the Republicans called their bluff. And once the government shut down over the weekend, President Trump and the Republicans put out that they would not negotiate the DACA issue or any immigration issue until uh, the government was reopened. So, you know, many people were calling it, there was a, it went viral, the Schumer shutdown, and the Democrats blinked. Now, now you're going to get a million points of view on all the different fake news outlets uh, saying it was the Republicans that blinked, it was Trump that blinked, it was whatever. But look, if they were successful in this, keep in mind the, the Democrats are the ones that pursued this in the first place. If they were being successful and they thought that public opinion was on their side, which it's not, and I'll explain in one second. They would have continued doing this to try to put more pressure on Trump and make him look bad. The fact that they've blinked, I think, uh, is because of CNN, hardly a pro-Trump site, put out a, conducted a poll and came back that 50%, 56% of America believes that the government should have never been shut down over DACA or an immigration issue. And I believe that's the key number when a good portion plus half uh, said that this is a bad idea, the Democrats blinked and backed down. Now, all that said, I think, and we'll wrap up with this, I think where we are right now is that I, I fervently believe that Donald Trump wants to find a solution to the DACA issue. But the issue that Schumer took to him last week uh, – was to give him less than 10% of what he needed to build the wall and yet continue uh, to give general amnesty to all the DACA recipients, all the dreamers, and their parents to give them three years of legal status as well and a pathway to, to citizenship, plus continued chain migration. Uh, and there was one other point I can't remember the top of my head. So, you know... <laughs> They went back, Schumer went back with what he tried to claim was this deal that Trump said he would sign and basically tried to pull a fast one. I think he found out that Trump wasn't as dumb as he thought he was. 
and shot it down. So where we stand right now is the government is voting. I, I haven't checked the last vote. I know the Senate was voting and was expected to pass uh, reopening the government. And I guess the House would do so very quickly afterwards and then send it to the president, and I'm sure signing it, which would continue to, the continual resolution would fund the government through February 8th, three weeks. And I'm sure in that time that we're going to hear an awful lot of talk about DACA's, uh, the DACA situation, illegal immigration, legal immigration. Look, it has to be tackled once and for all. It's been since 1986. It's a very complex issue. I don't think anybody, certainly us, that wants to see these people that were brought here as children, most of them, uh, young, young children, and many of them excelling and adding to America to see them deported. So I believe we're going to see a resolution to it, but this has been all of it an attempt by the president to put the pressure on Congress to finally tackle this sticky issue and get it solved once and for all. And I can tell you, I'll go on record right now as saying, if the Democrats come back and try to force this as an amnesty for everybody, for all the illegal immigrants in the country, or anything resembling amnesty, it's going to get shot down. So if the Democrats, Schumer among them, believes that this is such an important issue to keep these young dreamers in the country, then amnesty is a word that they should be very loath to throw around but it's an issue that has to be tackled once and for all. It's been far too long and time for us to take control of our borders once and for all. Well, not only was I able to give you the Shane McMahon uh, quote in basically real time, but I can tell you that as we were setting up this recording, the shutdown is over. Okay. So Good. Yeah. 9.22 PM. uh, Trump signed spending bill to fund the government through February 8th. After three days of contentious negotiations and name-calling, Congress voted to end a government shutdown Monday when Democrats agreed to trust the word of Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Right. So there you go. And, so, you know, real time. <laughs> I haven't seen any words from, you know, Lindsey Graham is a well-known member of the Gang of Eight from 2013 and Gang of Six from last week. He's a well-known, as is uh, uh, Flake and uh, uh, Gardner and several other uh, Republican and Democratic senators that want, you know, general amnesty and, and like to basically absorb all these people and give them legal status and citizenship, but still not even discuss the border. And so I guess... 20, 30 years from now, we'll have another 20 or 30 million that we'll say, well, let's just give them. And then 20, 30 years later, them as well. Uh, Look, this is a very tough issue, one that should have been dealt with a long, long time ago. And I don't want to, you know, undersell it as being something that's so easy to solve because it's not. But, you know, when you have the, the, the gang, what they're calling the gang of six now that took this offer back to Trump, that was basically the same thing that Trump had already shot down multiple times and they thought they'd try to pull a fast one uh, and give very, very little back to what Trump wanted. The end of chain migration, the end of the lottery, uh, 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 merit-based immigration, and the wall. There was very, very little of any of that, less than 10% of the wall of what Trump wanted and, and Homeland Security says we'll need to build it. 
Well, it got shot down, thank God. And so now we have another three weeks to work on this. I don't think they're out of the woods by far. I think they're still going to be – I think in the next three weeks, we're going to see an awful lot of the worst kind of politicking, name-calling, finger-pointing, and all the rest of it, basically what we've seen over the last year. And uh, But I think right now there's an opportune moment for the nation to solve this issue or begin to solve it once and for all, but that's got to include the wall, and it's got to include control of our borders, and it's got to include – for my Democratic friends across the aisle, something for the dreamers that, that were brought here as children and through no fault of their own have been caught up in this. So let's hope that over the next three weeks, some more sanity rules out than we've seen over the last week. Absolutely. And uh, I'm sure there'll be much more to uh, much more to cover. But if you don't mind, we're going to transition over here to guilty as charged. I don't want to leave anyone hanging with this uh, paper chain. Do you hear this? I have papers in front of me. I mean, this is like, this is a pretty big deal here. When we give JP the assignment, I mean, this guy attacks it uh, full bore. He secludes himself into a bunker that we do not know what happens when that door locks. And uh, he either goes through his, uh, I'm sure, catalog DVDs. He does his research. He, he cross-references websites. John, when you put together something like this, what is going through your mind? What are you looking for in terms of the details? I just like to have fun with it because I, I do like to go back and watch the show, first and foremost, or at least the match in question or, or you know, whatever change involved with I like to go back and watch it. But I do like to um, go back and, re- you know, look at the Observer or the Torch or you know, any sort of thing related to it. Then I, you know, see if anybody uh, – Credible, obviously, has a good review of the show online. And, you know, just important people in the business that actually study the business, know the history of the business, like to read what they had to say about it, what they thought about it, maybe a star rating on the match or some sort of moment that they thought really stuck out. So it's a lot of fun for me, really, to go back. I really enjoy researching and and kind of going into not so much of the rumor aspect, but the, the fact aspect of it. Well... I can tell you, there's a ton of facts. We're locked and loaded. That's right. There's a ton of facts. So I'm going to get into that. The first thing that's on here is the facts. And the event took place January 10th, 1999. It's the ECW Guilty as Charged pay-per-view, the commentary done by the voice of ECW, Joey Styles. Uh, in attendance, uh, it was said to be around 2,600 fans. The pay-per-view buy rate for the event was estimated at around 70,000 buys per this uh, fact I'm looking at here. But let me read the summary. Guilty as charged was the inaugural Guilty as charged professional pay-per-view done by ECW, produced by Extreme Championship Wrestling. The main event was a singles match between Shane Douglas and challenger Taz. Taz won the title, ending Douglas's 406-day reign, the longest in the title's history. Other notable matches on the card include Justin Credible defeating Tommy Dreamer in the first ever Stairway to Hell match and Rob Van Dam defeating Lance Storm to retain the ECW World Television Championship. So January 1999, Shane, coming off a red-hot year for the entire industry, what was the vibe in ECW as you guys left 98 where the entire business just absolutely catapulted to a new stratosphere? Yeah, you're right. The business was red, red hot. But there was sort of a pall over, no pun intended, over uh, ECW 
because this was around the time the checks had started bouncing uh, shortly, around, some point previous to guilty as charged, and which had caused a lot of people to be on edge, A, because they were owed a lot of money, me included, and they weren't quite sure. We weren't able to get any straight answers uh, from Paul or from uh, anybody involved in the management of, uh, of, uh, of ECW. And there was a, sort of this big, meandering, red, you know, flag, pink elephant in the room that was the bounce checks. And uh, you know, so there was a lot of consternation in the dressing room. That said, uh, I, as I recall, guilty as charged, the, the vibe in the building that night, once we had gotten to the building and people were in the building, the vibe was very typical for an ECW show. Uh, the boys, you know, I mean, the, the, you know, I was like stress this, the men and women of ECW, we always called the boys, uh, were locked and loaded and ready to deliver, which was typical for ECW. I had mentioned on Twitter earlier, I had never seen anybody in ECW half-ass it. And, you know, look back at Jim Thorpe, Ballstaff, you know, the Flagstaff uh, building that we ran in Jim Thorpe that held literally 50, 70, 80 people. It was a very small building. And, you know, everybody went out there and wrestled their ass off. Uh, Guilty as charged, to my recollection, was very reminiscent of what I'd seen previous in ECW, uh, a hard, uh, hard-working ethic by the dressing room. And, yeah, and quite the impressive uh, roster from the, uh, from the absolute fan perspective, just looking at all these guys, and uh, it's a... Uh, one of those timeless looks into uh, ECW's history. And I cannot forget to mention that uh, you were in the Millennium Theater in Kissimmee, Florida. So back down there in the Sunshine State, and Shane, I know for you, going down to Florida was going to be part of the entire journey of this show. So if you can, before we get into the nuts and bolts, do you recall anything else on the show? Like I mentioned, the Just Incredible Tommy Dreamer, Stairway to Hell, or the Rob Van Damage. Do you recall anything else about the show, or were you just focused on this amazing build that you had with Taz for your match? Well, for multiple reasons that we'll get into, I, I did not watch the show. I had no monitor in my dressing room. I dressed separate from the rest of the dressing room. Um, but I could tell by the sound of the crowd that, you know, once the show started, you know, you can feel, you know, after you've been around the business long enough, you can get a feel from the sound of the crowd, the ebbs and flows, ups and downs, uh, and it sounded very reminiscent of the GCW show. That said, you know, as for my comments earlier, I went back and watched the show later and was, was very impressed. You know, you could clearly see Rob Van Dam was on a mission to prove that, you know, he was a main eventer in GCW. Uh, just incredible. Uh, doing the same thing. Well, these guys were the second second and third stage of ECW uh, of classes, and it was clear to me after watching the playback that they were there to prove that they deserved to be there, they had something to offer ECW and the fans, and they delivered it to state starting a guilty in charge. So from what I saw afterwards, aside from all the, you know, the, the funny business that was going on backstage, came to me, uh, I, I saw it as, as, as another very strong ECW effort. 
Uh, absolutely, yeah. So then the background of the match between you and Taz was a, a absolutely epic, epic build that, you know, the promos and the excitement and the, the buzz that you guys were able to build around it uh, was absolutely monumental. But Taz uh, basically coming off a feud with Bam Bam, and it led into the feud with you. Now, we've talked about it in our interview back with we did with you in 2016, where this was where the start of, like you said, the check started to, to kind of bounce a little bit. They're playing their best basketball impression. They're starting to bounce. And <laughs> there's some speculation that this was an effort to get the title off of you because of that. Now, tell us the backstory of how this Taz feud was approached by Paul to you and how these two, the meeting of you and Taz had taken so many years to get to, uh, being basically the, the heel, heart, and soul of ECW and the face, heart, and soul of ECW. So how did this build uh, get approached to you by Paul Heyman? Well, the, the whole angle started, uh, and I can't remember how far before the actual on-television angle, but there was some people between Paul and Taz because uh, over, over the seats, uh, Paul would reimburse us for receipts <laughs> before the check was bouncing. And uh, you would hand the receipts over to them. So you had a $200 rental car fee. You'd hand him the receipt, he'd add $200 onto his paycheck. And, you know, this is how it was done from the earliest, my earliest recollections when Paul got the stuff that money. And I, I recall Paul coming here. He was picked off uh, because. Taz wanted the reimbursement, and he wanted to keep the receipts. One both. And I, I can remember Paul saying clearly, uh, verbatim, you know, I'm going to angle you with Taz, and Taz, Taz's first boss is the best Which, if you follow along with the build of that angle, uh, you know, me backpedaling, getting sent number three minutes, you know, uh, Feet around, you know, cross face with a broken uh, palate, uh, put the chicken wing with my elbow, in the, you know, still uh, after the surgery. All of those things were uh, things that I would never have done if I was doing the job. If I was, if I knew I was doing the job, ultimately in, in that angle, I would have done those things to pass. Uh, I would never have backpedaled. I would never have uh, uh, laid out that way. I don't blame Taz for that. Uh, you know, Taz and I talked about this many times. Uh, but you know, leading up to that event, it, I found this out that up until the Monday preceding of this show. As far as I knew, I was going to open that angle. And, you know, so I had plenty of match out in my head that kind of thing. And Monday evening, fire. Paul Hammond called and left a message on my phone after he knew I went to bed and said, hey, I've got an idea. I want to run past and give me a call. Well, I tried calling the next day. I tried calling him Wednesday. I tried calling him Thursday and all day Friday. Never got a call back. I was set to fly down Saturday morning. And uh, Friday evening, I had got a call back after multiple messages. I left him a message along the lines of, hey, it's, it's time, it's 9 p.m., 
10, 10 p.m. If I don't hear from you by this time, I'm assuming you don't want me to be at the show, and I'm going to go out and get drunk. Uh, when that time came and passed, and I hadn't got the call, I did as I said. I, I left and I went to a bar uh, called Kelly's Riverside Saloon and uh, started to get four up drunk. And uh, about 12.30, give or take that night, uh, Paul started calling. And I picked the phone up and I heard him talk and I hung up on him. He called back and I, I heard him hung up on him. I did this five or six times because I knew that this call off more than anything. And uh, finally, the sixth, seventh, eighth time, whatever it was, multiple times, uh, he said to his wife, he hang up, he said, are you keep hanging up on me? You listen to what I have to say. I said, Well, it's funny. I said, Because I tried telling you all week and you didn't have much to say. And now, after my deadline, suddenly you, 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 you become verbose and want to talk. Well, we talked from 12 30 that night until 6 37 a.m. the next morning, uh, going over and over this thing and him just smoothing me out the rear end. And uh, I finally agreed to go and flew to Orlando that later that morning or early afternoon and was met by my driver in, in Orlando. And, you know, that was, you know, basically the way that the whole thing was laid out, uh, the whole way it was told to me through the execution of the storyline. And then uh, the night before, as I just said. So now it took so long for you guys to to even touch each other, really, in an ECW ring. Uh, and you and Taz obviously being so heavily involved prior to this point into all the operations of ECW. Had you and Taz ever discussed when you guys were ever going to touch or you guys are ever going to have a few? Did you guys ever kind of sculpt this together in either, you know, years past or just in casual conversation? Was this something you guys ever chatted about? No. No, we, you know, we never had to. You know, it, it was, you know, I trusted Taz in the ring, and I knew what he was capable of in the ring, and I'm sure he the same thing back for me. So, no, we never said, hey, when this match finally happens, what if we do, like, this kind of match or that kind of match? Uh, that never came up between us. You know, we A, we were both busy doing the things that we were doing on a night-to-night basis and a day-to-day, week-to-week basis for the company behind the scenes. So, no, we never spoke. There was never a point that I recall anyway that uh, he and I sat down and said, hey, when the match finally happens, let's start thinking about what we're going to do. That, that, I don't recall any conversation like that. Now, in that conversation you had with Paul, and you guys are talking into all hours of the night, as you guys are talking, you know his style and you know how he is when it comes to, to business. Are you feeling him out during the phone call? Are you looking for things that he's saying? Yeah. If there's, you're, you're looking for little little hidden things in there to kind of catch him on? Absolutely. Not, not to catch him on, just to be able to hold him accountable to. You know, that, uh, you know, I was owed at that point somewhere, as I recall, it was around $77,000. Some of that was money owed to me for previous events, but a lot of it was money that I had spent out of my pocket uh, to promote shows in Pittsburgh, uh, Ross Traver, uh, Johnstown, Cleveland, uh, the towns that I had run, you know, whether it was the pay-to-fly 
the triple threat in for an on-sale date, uh, and then a limousine to travel us around uh, for radio spots, television spots, newspaper spots, things like that. Previously, when I did that, uh, you know, Paul had fallen behind previous to this point by thirty as much as thirty-six thousand dollars, and then he'd make up for it in in one fell swoop. And so there, you know, the fact that I was behind by that much certainly I was concerned about. But at that point, I didn't believe that Paul was going to screw me out of that money uh, because, we, like I said, we'd been through this before, never to that high of a number, but Paul had always made up sooner or later uh, when we'd fallen behind previous to that. So to answer your question, I was paying attention to what he was saying as it alluded to, to the money that I was owed. And my attorney, I'd already spoken to him about it, and he had said, you know, nail him down to agree to sign a uh, promissory note. And he explained to me how to word it so that it wasn't an ECW thing or a corporate thing. It was Paul Heyman personally being accountable for that money. And when he agreed to sign that, that was the culmination of that phone call, that all-night phone call, was that he agreed to sign that when I arrived in Orlando. And, uh, you know, so that was pretty much the way the phone call went. Uh, But during that phone call, uh, to say he had smoothed me or kissed my ass, that was that was his entire take on the phone call. You know, why would I screw you? You're my franchise. And, you know, phrases like that over and over and over again, uh, which to me, having been around the business, just led me all the more to believe that I was getting ready to get screwed. Uh, <laughs> because, you know, you know, Paul, I knew, I knew Paul and I knew people like Paul. You know, it, this wasn't my first rodeo in the business. And, you know, if you're that sincere, then just pay me the money you owe me. Um, you know, then, then there's no issue. And, you know, keep in mind from my, my point of view, that title was the only insurance policy that I had to get that money. Once that title was off me, it, you know, I, I basically could just bend over and grab my ankles. Because at that point, I have no leverage, zero leverage to get that money back. And, you know, so the whole time I'm balancing this out in my head. And, uh, you know, ultimately I can say, I, 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 for whatever reason, I can't remember the specifics, but I must not have trusted him because the entire weekend in Orlando, which is where we stayed, and then the day of the event, I, I just couldn't bring myself, you know, uh, I, I, you know, procrastinated to leave to the building. I was always one of the first at the buildings. And that day, I just, for some reason, couldn't bring myself to get in that car and go to the building. And then once I did, to get out of the car and go into the building, because I just, you know, I knew that it was the end of something and that it wasn't going to end up good for me or for my family. And that was my biggest concern. And and it's kind of ironic that, like we said, going into uh, the year 1999, the business was as hot as can be. And little over a year earlier, obviously, we all know what happened in Montreal with Bret Hart and Vince McMahon. Now, did you have it going through your head at all that because you had this kind of leverage with the, the payments and you had the belt, did you have any kind of uh, premonitions or suspicions? But did you think that Paul was capable of anything on that night if you sure. didn't show up to the arena? Absolutely. You know, not, not that I 
you know, feared Taz trying to shoot on me or, or that Taz would even do that. Uh, but I knew that once, you know, I knew w- what Paul's idea was. The only idea he could have if he's got suddenly this epiphany of an idea after a year buildup, the only idea that could be would be for me to lose the match, thereby losing the title, my insurance policy, and then be at his whim. And so, yes, there was great consternation on my part uh, for me and for mostly my family's sake. So now that, you're, packing, you're, you're packing your bags. You know, you've got the belt, you get your gear, you get everything all set to go. You know, the the ride to Orlando being what it is and, and the things going through your head. Are you talking to your your fellow, uh, your brother's been the bag? Are you talking to Bam Bam? Are you talking to Chris? Are you kind of keeping them looped in as to what's going on? Yes, and, and my driver, Damian Farron, who passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, the three of them, I was keeping them clued in, not to to the minutiae. You know, just that, hey, there's problems. You know, I'm not sure, you know, how this is going to play out. And, uh, you know, Bam Bam said it to me best. He, You know, before before he and Chris left to go to the building, he said, uh, he always called me Troy, of course. He said, look, Troy, he said, you're a smart guy. You know what you got to do. Just think it through and do what you got to do. And, uh you know, once I had gotten there, but, you know, I, I'm way ahead of the story because when I landed in Orlando, uh, my driver picked me up, Damian Farron picked me up at the Orlando airport, and we always stayed at the uh, Marriott down on Universal Drive, uh, down by, uh, you know, downtown Orlando. And uh, as we got onto the highway from the, from the airport to go, you know, it's like a 10, 12, 15 mile drive. Uh, as we're getting onto the to the toll road, Paul Heyman calls, and now after smoothing me all night on the phone, he calls and he he says, you know, I've, I've got one question for you, Shane. Is is all this drama about you doing a job, or is it about you doing a job to Taz? And God, did it really burn my ass, you know, because hey, I was the guy that suggested and allowed Bill McGillicott to defend me. So doing a job was never, and Taz the pin me under three minutes. So doing a job was never an issue for me. Doing a job at the improper time, improperly, or that would hurt the company, that was when I had an issue with it. And especially after this all-night phone call we had. So I said to myself, where the fuck are you right now? Because I'm at the uh, Marriott at, at the Orlando airport. I looked over my shoulder to the right, and there's the Marriott on the other side of the highway. So I, I hung the phone up, I reached over, and I grabbed the wheel of the car, and I cut the car and turned, like, did a U-turn in the middle of the highway, you know, with my driver panicking. And I told him, I said, get me to that Marriott right now. And we drove back to the Marriott and uh, walked in. And when I walked in, Ron Buffone and uh, Charlie Brzezzi, the ECW production crew, uh, uh, Bubba Ray Dudley, Francine, Devon, uh, I believe Mikey, there were a bunch of ECW guys sitting in the lobby. And I walked in and I said, what room is Paul Heyman in? And Bubba told me his room number and he said, I'm, I'm supposed to go up and meet with him in a few minutes. He said, well, give me a few minutes. I had to talk to him first. So I went up to his room. I told Damien, I said, you know, give me five, ten minutes. And then, you know, come up and meet me. And I went up and Paul had the latch of the door over, uh, I guess waiting for Bubba. And I walked in and Paul was in the shower 
phone over, and I sat down on the chair by the window, and I had my briefcase and opened it up, had all the paperwork there, and you know, I knew exactly what I was going to say. And a few minutes later, you know, uh, a less than uh, amiable sight came out of the <laughs> came out of the shower with a towel wrapped around. Uh, you know, you know, not to cast aspersions or anything, but you know, Paul Heyman doused with water and coming out of the shower with nothing but a towel around him ain't the prettiest sight. <laughs> and uh, he came out and his eyes about popped out of his head, and he, uh, I, I guess you know why I'm here, you know, and, and I brought the promissory note out and uh boy he turned babyface immediately you know and you know i started with what, what was 15 minutes ago does this have to do with doing a job and now suddenly he's back to the paul for seven hour phone call uh which just led me all the more reason to be hesitant of paul and his intentions so interesting. Yeah, I mean, and I'm not saying what's interesting is that he was coming out of the shower. That's just got to be a little side uh, footnote in the uh, in the story. But it, it's just it's so interesting that at that point, and for all that you guys had been through, that to hold up the idea that doing a job to Taz was going to be a possibility uh, of a problem for you. So then, you know, I mentioned, did you and Taz talk about the angle at any time point of view? What are you thinking about Taz in this process? And not even Taz, but the, the man outside of the Taz character, what are you thinking about him and what he's saying to Paul on the other side? Well, look, I I trusted uh, Taz implicitly. You know, I, I, Taz and I had no heat whatsoever. This had nothing to do with Taz. Um, but I was curious as to what Paul was telling him because, and would find it out, and we'll get to that in a few minutes, because uh, sometime later that evening, you know, he and I had that conversation. And I came to find out that for the entire year that Paul was telling me that I was going over that angle, he was telling Taz the same thing. And, you know, this is the kind of thing, you know, we hear, you know, we all throw the phrase around politics and wrestling. Uh, this is what it looks like, ugly face in real time. You know, so, you know, if you're going to play that game, unless you think you're just brilliant and everybody else is an idiot, that you're going to be able to do that and that at some point these two guys aren't going to talk and uncover what, what it is you're doing or whatever, or if you just don't care, I would suggest that none of those, are, are good outcomes, you know, for better or for worse, as the big mouth asshole for the company all those years, the franchise had become a staple of ECW. And, you know, if you're going to try to underhanded screw this guy that did all this to help build that company, and I by no means mean to take, you know, credit for the success of ECW, but I certainly was part of that. And, to then try to be underhanded and screw me out of money that you owe me and to try to position it in a way where, you know, you're like a self-fulfilling prophecy. You're trying to get Shane Douglas to quit or whatever. Just isn't good for business. You know, it's, I mean, how long was the undertaker, you know, a major star in the WWF and, and if he were, you know, younger and, and still not, you know, not as banged up as he's after all these years of battles, would still be and, and you know a major star and still comes back for all these major events. So this idea in ECW that well you've been around for 406 days as champion, so we you know it's time to brush you off and throw you away. Just not a smart idea uh, in professional wrestling. When 
how many of the ECW resources have been spent to build me, uh, to put the heat on me and Francine, and, you know, to make that character the draw that he was. You know, so to me, it boiled down to, to really a, one or a few things. It boiled down to that I was owed a substantial amount of money, and if Paul could get me to quit or fire me or take the belt off me and not book me, whatever, however you phrase it, that $77,000 he can give to somebody else to try to pay down those debts. Because I wasn't the only one that was owed money. There were lots of guys that, uh, and women that were owed money in ECW. So, you know, this just became pretty much a, you know, a, a, a debacle of his own making. You know, if you make $100,000, you can't spend and, and hand out 200000 And if you do, sooner or later, and you keep doing that, sooner or later you're going to get caught up in it and it's going to come down crashing on your head, which is ultimately what happened to ECW. But uh, I would maintain, and, and this is by no means patting myself on the back, but of all the things that I deserved in ECW, I did not deserve to get screwed by that company. Uh my family lost out in the end over $144,000 that I was owed ultimately. And, you know, for all that I had done, not only with my mouth in ECW, but with my body, the miles that I put on my body, the broken bones and the injuries and the surgeries and all of that in ECW, I didn't do that for Paul. I did that because I truthfully believed in ECW. And so for the, at the end of it to have been so ignominiously dumped, and mistreated and then screwed out of a substantial portion of money that I was owed. Uh, I just think made ECW as special as it was. At that point, ECW became the same as WWF and WCW and the NWA and all the other guys out there that used to pull all that shit that Paul claimed he would be different then. Yeah, and that's that's really sad to hear for you because of all you did to get to that point in 77,000 in January 1999 and then for it to be a final figure when you decided to uh to to leave later in the summer that the number would rise to such, you know, monumental uh heights is is out of this world but you know you look at the card and I know we mentioned just a couple of matches but you know the immense talent that he does have to pay on this show to include international talent and to include a guy like Sid being on the show. And then, of course, we know Tammy was now in the fold with you guys in the triple threat and Bam Bam and, and you know, and his regulars and all these guys. Just the fact that you were owed 77000 at this point is unfathomable that there was operations on a daily basis, let alone a pay-per-view going on. But now does all this stuff – factor into your match preparation um, and how you want to put together the match in your head? Absolutely. Uh, you know, how could it not? You know, I mean, and again, it had nothing to do with Taz, Peach, and Urcher. It had to do with just me being around the business as long as I did. And I knew what, what, what the score was. You know, I knew what was going down. I knew what was happening. Um, so when I got to the building that day, I remember multiple... You know, I sat. You know, I got. First of all, I got there as late as I could, and I sat in my car in the in the parking lot of the uh, Millennium Center, and just couldn't bring myself to get out of the car. I, I you know, I, there was a part of me that was fearful of going in there and losing my cool and grabbing Paul by his throat. Uh, there was a part of me that just wanted to shove it up his ass. As a result, 
Um, and I just couldn't get out of the car. And I remember uh, Axel Rotten, you know, rest his heart, uh, stopped by the car. Balls, uh, another, stopped by. Uh, Tammy and Chris stopped by. Uh, I I want to say uh, maybe Lance Storm also stopped by. I remember multiple guys and, and, and you know, uh, of the boys stopping by the car and saying, hey, what's going on, and are you coming in? And uh, I finally just said, you know what, fuck it. I ain't doing it. You know, I knew I was getting screwed, and I knew that I could, with that belt, leverage it with one of the other companies to make back at least the money that I was owed and probably more. And so I drove away, and I went to a Friday's or a – uh, you know, what are they, what, you know, the Bennigan's or, you know, one of those type of places. And I ordered a beer and I was sitting there and, you know, uh, you know, checking out what time flights were um, and everything. And Bam Bam called. And, you know, we talked and I told him what was going on and I brought him up to speed, pretty much, you know, the nuts and bolts of it. And uh, he said, well, you, you got to do what you got to do. He said, but, you know, do you really want to screw the fans? And, you know, I got to give him credit, you know, because he was exactly right. I, I, after I sat there and, you know, ordered a couple shots and I thought about it, as much as I knew I was getting screwed, even more so than me not deserving to get screwed, the ECW fans didn't deserve to get screwed. And, you know, for me to walk away and then them have to, you know, strip me of the title and have a tournament or give it to Taz or whoever would have been the shits for the belt. It would have been a shits for the company. It would have been the shits for the fans. And and that was what ultimately made me decide to go back to the building. And when I walked into the building, you know, just in, with a huge chip on my shoulder, uh, I forget who it was, but there was somebody standing inside the door and they, they put their arm up like blocking off the the other side of the building and said, uh, you guys have to all dress over here. Well, just because that person said that, and with a chip on my shoulder, I thought, fuck you, I'm going to go exactly where you tell me I can't go. <laughs> so I pushed his arm out of the way and walked to the alternate side of the building where nobody was and opened up the dressing room door, and there was a huge dressing room there all to myself. And uh, I walked in. And a short time after, uh, Francine came over, knocked on the door. I'd locked the door. She locked on the door, and I uh, went over and opened it. And I told her, I said, no, you know, I don't need, you know, you're not welcome here tonight, Fran. I'm going to take care of business from here myself. And I closed the door and locked it. And a few minutes, 10, 15 minutes later, the door knocked again. I thought it was Franny coming back. And I said, Franny, I told you, you're not, you know, you're not dressing in here. And I hear, hear the voice go, well, goddamn, Shane, I thought I could come in. It was Terry Funk. So I jumped up, went over and unlocked the door and opened the door for Terry, and he came in. And uh, I'm sure he had spoken to Paul, but I don't know I don't know that for a fact. And he asked what was going on and told him. And uh, I said, I'm going to go through the match, and I'll drop the belt uh, as Paul wants, and then I'm done. And uh, we sat and talked for a long while. And sometime shortly after that, Taz came over. And that was what got me back on like a level playing field in my head, you know, it was just being able to talk with a guy that I respected and that I would be working with and to start to hammer out what we would do in the match, you know, how, how we would do it, how we proceed in it, that sort of thing. 
But uh, there was, like I said, there was never any heat with Taz. Uh, I never once thought that Taz and Paul concocted this because you know, I always took Taz as being a straight, straight shooter that, you know, if, if that's what he thought should be done, then he'd have said that. Um, but, you know, that, that was the way things transpired until it came time for Matt. And the build-up to this was kind of <clears throat> behind the scenes a lot different than in front of the camera because in front of the camera was very much Taz versus Shane. It seems like the building for Taz to eventually end the long-hated title reign of the franchise. And, it, you know, everything seemed to be kind of working in order. It's strange to find out, but obviously, you know, obviously researching, you find out that so much was going on behind the scenes. Do you think that any of that bled out in front of the camera because I just remember as a fan watching it I don't recall any heat or any sort of controversy do you think any of it kind of bled out to the fans or, or the fans didn't kind of catch on you guys were too professional about it uh, well previous to that night there would have been no way for the fans to have caught it because uh, you know like I said I, I found out Monday of that week and was not on camera anywhere until the time of the show. Um, I know, I doubt that Taz would have found out any earlier than I did. And uh, so, no, I don't think that any, during any of the time of the buildup and the execution of the angle over the course of that year, everything that we did was just based off of the way we did things in ECW. I'll go out and say my piece, you go out and say your piece, and it's a confrontation, a face-to-face promo or, you know, uh, you know, you on one side of the building, me on the other side of the building, whatever. Uh, that was just the professionalism of Taz and Shane Douglas, you know, that we would go out and, you know, hit our responses to each other. And, you know, it was, the one thing I always hate in promos is, you know, I'll say something and then you say something back and then I'll say something back to you, you say something back to me. And then I say something back to what you said back to You know, at some point it starts to look like two pansies. You know, all you know, you're running your jaw. What's stopping you from fighting? And I thought that Taz and I had as good as anybody uh, chemistry in that respect. You know that. You know we knew where each other's breaks would come in their conversation and a phrase and a sentence uh, when they were making a point that you thought should be delivered and finished before you cut them off. Uh, and the same for Taz back to me. Uh, so no, there was no, uh, there was no way the fans could have seen uh, any kind of consternation or or behind the scenes heat, because up until that week there was none. You know, there, this was just a straightforward angle being executed the way that Taz and I could do it. Now, how was Taz's backstage demeanor at this time? Because you always hear he was cranky or he was never in a good mood, <laughs> or he just you know he didn't really care for anybody. Is any of that actually true? How was his demeanor backstage, and how was his relationship with you? Was he like a cranky guy? Uh, I could see why people would say that. I always got along great with Taz. Uh, you know, we had, like, you know, our own little group uh, that would, uh, we dressed, you know, typically there was a room underneath the, the, the like, the stairway and, and the uh, old, the way the old, you know, set up in the back room area was uh, Perry Satter and me, uh, Bam Bam. Candido, Francine, Tammy. You know, there was a group of us that would dress back there. Uh, but yeah, I, I would think what others would call cranky was Taz just expecting the best from everybody and expected everybody to be professional. 
So Taz and I agreed on a lot of things, you know, with the rampant drug use, uh, uh, the, you know, the drinking before matches, stuff like that, because, you know, let's face it, what we do is an imprecise science to begin with, and you start throwing things into that mix, you know, you being mentally impaired, whether it's by drugs, by drinking, whatever it is, uh, then you just exponentially ramp up the, the possibility for injury. Taz, uh, I, I think a lot of that crankiness that people would say came from that with Taz. But then I also think there was a lot of that Taz character that he was portraying backstage, much like I and Francine played off that we were an item. You know, so, uh, but no, I never had any, any problems with Taz in the dressing room. I always thought he was a pro. As far as Heyman's booking is concerned, building up to this match, I feel like, you know, it's really on point, very good. You know, you guys had this six-man at the November to November 98, RVD, Taz, and Sabu against the triple threat. So, it, you know, you and Taz are on the opposite side. It kind of builds it. Uh, you and Taz even teamed a couple shows, and, and like, that kind yes. of builds it. So many different cool things. And then, obviously, Taz and Bam Bam, which we mentioned before, that is a great job because t- Bam Bam is like your enforcer. He's the guy you have to get through to get to the franchise. And Taz has an epic feud with him and ends up beating him. So I feel like the booking is kind of leading to you versus Taz, and it is on point. Did you like the way it was booked building up to the event? I, I, I thought it was uh, perfect in the build-up. You know, um you know, I know there, were, there was a little bit of hesitation and, and bam, bam, and, and doing repeated jobs to Taz, but, you know, he understood where, where the whole thing was leading. I also don't think that, Taz, that bam, bam would have just accepted laying down uh, in those angles had he thought the ultimate was going to be that his guy is losing the belt. I think the fact that, Taz, that bam, bam laid down in those matches and those finishes went the way that they did uh, was based off of, you know, okay, so then later he could say, well, look, uh, you know, I ran the roadblock and allowed you to win, the, with, you know, retain the title. So I, I think all around the, the way that Paul booked that and the execution from everybody involved was, was damn near perfect, flawless, up until the point of that last match. Uh, because when you look at that last match uh, with the dropping of the title, the way that the entire thing had been built to that point, um, you know, Taz attacking me when I had the fractured palate, uh, you know, the night of the uh, Al Snow match, the cross face and the, you know, the, the bloody mouth and, you know, the grabbing the elbow and locking it in the Fujiwara arm bar, uh, you know, all of those things, beating me under three minutes, you know, the constant backpedaling of the triple threat. Um, all of those things, had they lent towards us, any of us, in this case me, because I was the guy wrestling them, doing the job, at the end of that, as soon as I do that job, as soon as that one, two, three, or that count out comes, uh, then we're all dead in the water. So if you have Bam Bam Bigelow, the franchise, and Chris Candido, three major talents, whose heat has now been flushed down the toilet by this. Uh, that's the only place where I think the, the culminating match of that entire angle is what threw the execution of the entire angle over that year 
completely cattywampus because it should have been the exact opposite. Taz being the babyface, with me doing the job ultimately, should have had us constantly beating Taz down, you know, uh, screwing Taz out of the matches, uh, you know, us causing him to lose to Bam Bam and then ultimately winning the last match to get past Bam Bam. Uh, You know, when he comes out to attack me, him getting, you know, beaten down by the triple threat. Uh, then that would have made perfect sense into me doing the job at the end. But for me to have gotten pinned in under three minutes in the, the TV title, the triple threat backpedaling for the better part of the year, and like a hot knife through butter going through the beef from the east, and then beating me in the end, I don't think it did much to build Taz, because uh, Taz was already over. and But it, it flushed all of my heat and the triple threat feet down the drain. And so that's where, you know, from, from a business standpoint, I knew that Paul's quote-unquote, I got an idea early in the week, I knew where that was going, and I knew what it meant. Uh, there's no way, how do you come back off that? After I get beaten for the belt, after all those things I just mentioned, how do I or the triple threat come back and say, yeah, but, you know, well, yeah, I, I lost, and, we got backpedaled for a year and we got dubbed out for a year, but we're still badasses. Um, there's, I would never have played that, that role had I known that was the combination of the angle and, and Paul's head. Seems like maybe a last minute curveball by Paul Heyman and maybe, you know, obviously maybe a little bit nervous about how he owed you all that money and, and kind of, you kind of held, you know, we're holding it over, over his head to a certain extent. That probably made him extremely nervous. Maybe he threw a little curveball, changed things up, try to kill your heat to try to, you know, maybe, you know, sift you out and really give Taz the push. It's just, you know, that whole thing it, to me, even as a fan, I, I kind of didn't like it. I didn't like the fact that it would happen at guilty as charge. I felt like he, Taz, if he's going to beat you, you win that match, and then a bigger pay-per-view, maybe uh, Heat Wave or even November to Remember later the year, like something else leading into a bigger, even bigger match between you two. Am I crazy for thinking that, that that, that could have been even bigger? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Because then you have, uh, you know, after all that buildup, you know, all the things that I just mentioned a second ago, now we go into this match, and you have me, however I do it, dog and pony show, get lucky, pull his tights, use the chain, evil referee, whatever. However, as long as my hand gets raised in that first match and I retain the title, now that gives me incredible bragging rights as the heel, as the franchise of ECW, to say, yeah, but you still lost your first match to me. And, uh, you know, that would have given so much more buildup to that. That would have put that whole angle on steroids. And like Steve Austin's face, strapped a rocket to our ass leading into that. Now you go into the next match, whether it's at November to Remember or another bigger pay-per-view. Now you have the fans thinking, well, Shane beat him once. I don't think he beat him. Maybe he can. And then the fans start to second-guess themselves. Well, Paul would think, that we would expect Shane to lose the second one, so Shane's probably going over. They they would start to second-guess themselves 
which is exactly how a well thought out angle is supposed to do. Um, no, I, I, I agree completely. You know, had I gone over in that first match, which I think is why Paul had us do a return at the ECW arena the very next week. The fans at that one believed that, well, it was just an aberration. Shane's going to get his belt back. Um, you know, so, but after I did that second job the next week, you know, the franchise character was dead in the water as far as Taz was concerned and the world title was concerned. So I knew that at that point was pretty much the end of the road for me. I have a couple of questions about the rematch, but I'll ask them in a little bit because they're very interesting to me. But first, I just want to quickly just go through the event because obviously we'll, we'll lead into the big main event. But uh, the event, Paul Heyman starts off the show. He notifies everyone that Masato Tanaka didn't make it in from Japan. Jerry Lynn is uh, recovering from an injury. Both are scratched from the card. So as we start to move through the card and we start to – Get get you know right into the nitty gritty. Starts off with a not so great tag team, a three way elimination match. Axel and Balls, Doring and Roadkill, the FBI. It just it I don't know. It's a weird elimination match. Kind of some of the guys that kind of I wouldn't say brought ECW down, but it wasn't it wasn't their best. Effort, I don't think by by anybody involved. It's just a weird match. So Balls and Axel end up winning that match, but then there's a great singles match after that with Tajiri and Super Crazy. So Shane, when you have that as kind of your lead in, and and you you go from kind of a weird match that doesn't work, then you go Tajiri versus Super Crazy, and they have a great match. Are you at all paying attention to saying, "Wow, you know, like that match flopped," and "Oh, that's going to be hard to follow." No, like I said, I didn't have a monitor and I wasn't paying attention real time. I, I, I watched the show later. Um, I wasn't paying attention to it then. I was, in my head, there was this constant, you know, much like that through the NWA belt on. I will, I won't. I will, I won't. I will, I won't. Uh, going back and forth in my own head as to, you know, it, it's a really difficult thing when you know you're getting, you know, the broomstick shoved up your ass. And that you, because you've precluded the idea that you're not going to do the match, uh, and then screw the fans, uh, you know, and you and you know you're walking into the line of fire. It's a really difficult thing. You go through a lot of mixed emotions. Um, the one thing I didn't want is I did not want to see Paul Heyman uh, because you know I had quite a temper back then, and you know I I, I just didn't want to go down that route. I didn't want to hear him blow smoke up my ass. I didn't want to hear him try to give me some bullshit excuse or double talk. And so I stayed in my dressing room, and, and the only people I spoke to that night was uh, uh, Taz and uh, uh, Terry Funk. I didn't pay attention to the matches. But, again, I was listening to the, to the audience, and I could hear the you know the rise of the audience and the pops and uh, – you know, I, plus I, I had known what uh, Tajiri and Super Crazy were capable of, so I was imagining in my head the type of match that they were having. Uh, but, no, I didn't watch in real time. I didn't watch any of the match. So I'll just move on quickly because you can't get your real initial reaction from it, but Sid with Judge Jeff Jones defeats John Cronus. The Dudley boys beat New Jack and Spike Dudley. Another one of those matches where it just – 
it just stunk up the the place. It just didn't work. So it's kind of, and I know you're probably not paying as much attention to it, but it's kind of a flop of a show so far. I mean, Tajiri Super Crazy is good, but everything else kind of stinks. The crowd was in love with Sid, which was shocking for an ECW crowd. Um, ECW television championship match saved it a bit. RVD beats Lance Storm. So, I mean, that was a good match mm-hmm. for sure. Then there's a Stairway yep. to Hell match. Credible beats Dreamer. It's a pretty good match. Not great. It's not the best. It was I guess the first ever match ever, of, of, quote unquote, of, of the stairway to hell, but it didn't quite work as well. Yeah. So it's kind of like a weird night. It's like kind of all this promise. This could be great. All of a sudden, Masato Tanaka, who was just underrated as hell, awesome, not on the card. Jerry Lynn, underrated mm-hmm. as hell, awesome wrestler, not on the card. Then, you know, you start yeah. getting some duds with the Dudley Boys and a couple of the other matches. Sid is kind of cool as a thing. Tajiri Super Crazy obviously was great. RVD Storm I think was great. It's it's kind of, I don't know. It's a weird night. It has a weird feeling to it. And then it gets to the main event, the World Heavyweight Championship. Taz defeats Shane Douglas with the Taz mission, ending your 406 day title reign as champion. Think about this, and, and I know I've actually this before. Actually, I think somebody um, sent it in as an ass franchise anything, but. What was up with that match? Because it starts off with almost 10, 11, 12 minutes of the two best wrestlers, arguably, in, in the company, uh, as far as work rate, in the crowd brawling. What was what was up with the change up there? Well, we, you know, we, Taz and I had, had several matches before that where we had gone, uh, gone into the match and done extensive chain wrestling and counters and takedowns and, and all of that. Uh, we Taz did, you know, as you were talking about the rest of the, 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 the car, when Taz finally came over to talk, he did tell me that, you know, that the show wasn't going the way that they had expected and, you know, the, 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 we, we really needed to deliver. And uh, so, as I recall, the two of us had talked about the idea of do we do the same thing we've done up to this point or do we try to throw a curveball and give them something that they don't expect to see from Taz and Shane Douglas, uh, you know, so, you know, I, I, I watched briefly a few clips from the match earlier today and, you know, the opening spot, you know, culminated into the, into the you know, the T-bone and, and me rolling out of the ring, you know, that was very typical of what Taz and I were capable of doing and we didn't want to go out and just deliver to the fans the same match, the same type of match that we'd had before and so we thought, Let's give them a little bit of the ECW flavor that, that they like so much and bring it back and then deliver this, this multi-layered finish, which, you know, was a little bit of a curveball to me. I, I, I would have much preferred to do it in a way that, uh, you know, if you had any involvement, maybe one person or, or something, but, you know, all those multiple layers of people coming and going and, I just think, you know, just watered it down at the finish uh, to make it convoluted and, and, and a convoluted finish as opposed to giving them a, a, a world title-worthy finish. Um, you know, Taz, you know, putting me out with the Taz, Father uh, Hazeme, uh, or me pinning Taz or uh, whatever. But uh, I was not at all in favor of the, the multi-layered finish that was given you know, to come up with that kind of a finish. 
it is interesting, you know, the, how it starts with the, the brawling and everything. It's definitely a huge curveball. Definitely didn't expect that. But, you know, as far as that brawling, do you think it killed any of the heat in, in the match? Do you think it killed the crowd at all that you guys did that brawling? It was maybe too much of a curveball or no? No. As I recall that night, the crowd was pretty much into it in the building. Um, they were seeing something that they never saw Taz and Sam Douglas do. You know, that wasn't our typical, either not just our matches together, but in either of our styles of matches, that wasn't what the fans were used to seeing from us. And so, as I recall, the fans, as we were fighting up into the uh, stands and, you know, uh, upward, and, uh, uh, the one thing I will say was when Taz gave me the, the suplex over the railing onto that, that sort of slanted ramp, uh, I was supposed to go through that. And, you know, which I think would have got a huge pop. And what the hell it was made of, I don't know, but it was indestructible. I mean, you could have driven a car on that damn thing. Um, so, no, as I recall, the audience, you know, was, was pretty well into the, that up to that point. But once we got back into the ring, we then had to, because of time constraints, we then had to go pretty quickly to the finish, which brought in the Sabu and Candido and Tammy and Francine and, and all this, like, multi-layered finish, uh, our plan was to, when we got back into the ring, was to then go into a second set of the chain wrestling and the counters and the takedowns that the fans did expect to get from us. So then, from that point on the menu, they would have gotten the match start the way they expected, then go into this curveball that they didn't expect from us, and then to come back, and almost an exclamation point at the end of the sentence for the match, this this classic mat wrestling back and forth from, you know, Taz and Shane Douglas, then this multi-layered finish. Unfortunately, by the time we had gotten back at the ring, there wasn't enough time to, to do what we wanted to do with that, that part of the match. Do you think a match like that, and a match of high importance, is ending your title reign, it's just... You know, two of the best guys in the company. Do you think it needed the run-ins of Sabu and the run-ins of Tammy and Francine and Chris Candido at that point? No, no. Uh, I, I think you know the, the one thing that I was, uh, I, I was in my head, I was sort of playing it out. You know, and, y'all, and it, there were times when you start to second guess, like, am I thinking of this properly, or am I just, you know, going down some rabbit trail? But I was pretty certain that the fans were going to uh, not like the finish initially because it was a passing of a torch. And even though the fans loved to boo me and throw things at me and call me all the names, they also were, were respectful of the fact that I was the guy that threw the NWA belt down and carried that belt so long and had put so much into the, the world title that that kind of there was nothing against Taz or whoever I would have been dropping the belt to. But anytime you have that kind of an iconic shift of the passing of the torch, the fans have a way of paying respect to the guy doing the job, passing the torch. And so I told Taz in the back, remember, Taz just always looked at me. First thing he would do when he'd win a match, he'd grab the belt and he'd climb the rope. And I told Taz in the back, I said, whatever you do, don't climb the rope after the match. And... I know Taz was suspicious of me, and he looked at me like that furry eyeball. And I said, trust me, I'm telling you, Taz, just not a good thing to do. Don't do it. And so I was laying there on the mat 
after all that dog and pony show, Sabu and Candido and Tammy and Francine, uh, I think all those portions of the match by themselves were good curveballs, you know, for Sabu to come out with it, except for his turban catching on fire, uh, uh, was an exciting thing for ECW fans. They loved Sabu. Uh, Tammy and Francine getting into a cat fight. The fans always loved a good cat fight. Uh, For Candido to come out and to double cross me, I think was a, a big holy shit to the fans. But when you put them all together at the end of this kind of an iconic match, that is the passing of the torch from one great ECW champion to the next, um, it was overkill. And it, it, like I said, it, it took a lot of time away from us to do what we could have done in the ring um, match-wise, the way we had planned to do it, um, as opposed to doing all that extra on top of it. addition. Just think about it, but the finish of the match was him getting caught on Hajime, me unable to get out of it, me unable to get to the ropes, and finally I pass out, that's the champion. All the rest of it was perfunctory. It wasn't inclusive to the finish. It wasn't uh, uh, pertinent to the finish. It was just more stuff thrown in, I guess, from Paul's point of view, to try to make it more exciting. And uh, it was unnecessary. You know, had you taken those five, six minutes out, for all of them coming out and doing all those things, that would have given Taz and I a lot more time to go into counters and takedowns and falsies and, uh, you know, all those things I think the fans expect to see from us. But by the time we worked our way back to the to the, uh, uh, to the ring, Finnegan was alerting us that, you know, we had to start wrapping up. And, you know, so he had time to use because, you know, how much time it was going to take, he being Paul in the back knew how much time it was going to take for Sabu to come in and do his part, and then for Tammy and Francine's uh, cat fight, and then for the Candido segment, and, and then still to get to the finish itself. Um, way, way too much overkill, in my estimation. But uh, as I'm laying on the mat, selling the Kata I open my eyes and I see the fans flipping me the bird. You know, like that. And, I mean, just a real pissed off look on their face. Fuck you, fuck you. And I'm thinking, boy, I really misgaged I, I that one. And I was, boy, was I wrong. And then I rolled over and realized the fans weren't flipping me the bird. They were flipping Taz the bird. And because Taz had climbed the, the rope, and I warned him not to. Um, you know, uh, there were things that we could have obviously done better in that match. Um but I'm proud of the effort. When you add in all the things that were going on, all of the politics that were leading into this match, the fact that I'm, I could have very easily taken the belt and just said sayonara and left and, you know, negotiated with Vince or Bischoff and who would be the highest bidder for me to lose, drop that belt in their company. But in the final analysis, I'm proud of the fact that I didn't, that, that Bam Bam gave me the advice that he did. Uh, because of all things that happened, the the one entity that did not deserve to get screwed was the ECW fans. And so in hindsight, going back, if I could do it again, I would have done the exact same thing. I wouldn't have left. Uh, would have been smarter for me to, uh, financially, but uh, I, I couldn't bring myself to screw the ECW fans 
just because Paul was playing bad politics. Bad politics, indeed. And ECW was always known as being unpredictable and doing things a different way. Was it almost too predictable to have Taz win the belt then and there? I think with the way that the buildup was, yeah. You know, you know, every at every juncture leading up to that match, you know, you can't beat me under three minutes. Beats me under three minutes. Faces me all over the place. Goes through my roadblock. Bam, bam, bigger like a hot knife through butter. Um, keeps on jumping on me and you know beating me down when I'm injured. Fractured palate, reconstructed elbow. It's like dumping a kid out of a wheelchair. You know, at what point does it become overkill? And then, after all of that, having him win the match and raise his hand, it was just, to me, that was WWF booking. You know, it was just straightforward. This baby face is going to just romp over everybody. It's anticlimactic. Uh, it doesn't lend itself to furtherance of the storyline. The only thing that made sense was that it was clear that Paul wanted to get Shane Douglas out of ECW at that time so that he wouldn't have to pay him the money that he was owed. Because anything else, the point you make of the anticlimactic fashion of the finish uh, after the buildup, the way it was built up, again, had I had Paul said to me at the outset of that, you know, we're going to do this fantastic angle with you and Taz at the end of dropping the belt, I would never have backpedaled from Taz once let alone every week. I would never have let him go through Bam Bam like he did. I would never have let him back the triple threat down as many times as he did by himself. Uh, those things were all done, and I'm sure if Chris and Bam Bam were here to talk, they'd have said the same thing. They would never have done it and, and reduced themselves as bit players in a match that we were doing the jobs in. We were all damn good heels, and we knew how to keep our heat. Uh by chasing us and backing us down and beating me in under three minutes and all those things that were done in the, in the lead-up. And then for him to go over the match, I think, was just such straightforward WWF-style booking that wasn't ECW in any way, shape, or form that uh, it was unfair to Taz. Again, like I said earlier, this, none of this had anything to do with Taz. You know, Taz just happened to be the guy that that I was angled with when Paul came up with this idea of saving a few bucks. Um, it was unfair to Taz and giving the belt in that fashion. Uh, you know, I think it sort of hobbled him going into the title as, you know, as good as a world champion as he was. All those things that ECW was renowned for, suddenly in that match, in that angle, none of it was conducted. And it, it, it appeared to be just another wrestling angle the way it was played out as opposed to being an ECW world title worthy angle that gave you the oh my god what the fuck uh, surprises that ECW was so infamous for. Let me throw you a little bit of a curveball. Let's say you know Taz maybe didn't beat you. Do you think Taz was the right man to beat you or if you almost want to go unpredictably you have you beat Taz at that show and Another hot guy at that point, like a guy like RVD, beats you for the title. You end up getting it back. You know, doing something a little bit different, changing it up. Do you think maybe a curveball like throwing RVD in the mix would have been better? I don't know about throwing him in the mix because, you know, if you mean like implied, like instead of Sabu or whoever, 
that came out in that match. I think the reason that Paul always kept Rob Van Dam and Shane Douglas separate was that you had he had two strong draws in those two. Um, to put them into one match and one angle, then suddenly is splitting your draw in half. Um, so I don't think that Paul ever had plans to put it together. Plus, our styles didn't really jive that well. You know, I mean, it was and, and nothing against Rob, and I, I don't mean to suggest that. It was just that, you know, Rob was more of that high-flying, you know, guy who can do all those Sabu-style uh, spots and angles and, you know, with that, you know, that, that glib uh, Rob Van Dam delivery, you know, that, that he was so good at. Uh, I, I, he wasn't – that wasn't the kind of character that I played off well of. I played – my character played best off of that explosive uh, – Strong, big man, uh, uh, you know, guy. Not, not, not. Uh, I wasn't the, the big high spot guy in ECW, so I, I think that Paul probably thought that being a big part of it, and then not wanting to split his draw uh, in half. Um, but I, I think Taz was a perfect guy to drop the belt to. But if that was the ultimate place you wanted to go. Um, the way, you know, by that point, it's too late. You know, we're, we're a year into the angle. You, you know, you can't turn back time. So the only thing that would have made sense the night a guilty is charged is for me to, in whatever way, snatch victory from the jaws of defeat, so to speak, and go over on Taz. Now that, that emboldens my bragging rights as a heel. I said it. I told you I could do it, and I did it. I was the first guy to beat you, blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, with the condescending, you know, I don't have to wrestle you again. I've already beaten you. What, what, what's beating you twice going to do? Uh, beyond that, you know, then, you know, you can put Taz to whatever gamut you have to to get him back to a rematch. And when that rematch comes up, like I said earlier, the fans will then start to re- second-guess themselves. Uh, Taz going over is too obvious. Uh, that's what Paul wants us to think. So I bet Shane's going to go over, and then the whole build up to that. And if you did this a two tier angle like that, then the same thing as in the uh, first build up. Uh, I mean, converse to the to the first build up. After I've beaten him, now you have to have me doing all those things to Taz, uh, not him backing down from me. That would never work for the Taz character. But me screwing Taz, me fucking Taz, me, you know, screwing with Taz in every way I can, and then going into that second match. Then dropping the belt would make perfect sense. Uh, but in that first one after the buildup, uh, no, no way to make it make sense other than uh, to try to deliver the goods in, in the match. But for the fans watching, I think that's part of the reason that they gave the feedback to Taz when he climbed the ropes that they did, you know, they, uh, by that time they were respecting Shane Douglas, the, the, the wrestler, albeit hating the franchise character. But now after a year of seeing me get pinned in under 30, uh, under three minutes, uh, backpedaled the triple threat, you know, beating me down when I was hurt and all those things. Uh, in my book, that almost made me the baby face. You know, that here's, here's a guy with a fractured palate, a reconstructed elbow, and this badass is coming out and beating him up when he's hurt. 
Um, it was just really an odd way to build at that point, but we were already on that trajectory. You know, we already knew where we were going, and that was fine if the, if the outcome of that final match at Guilty as Charged was me going over, no matter how it was, no matter how cheaply I went over. As long as Shane Douglas's hand got raised at the end of that match, then all of that stuff would have been fine uh, and would have lent itself towards the fans coming out and going, you piece of shit, you should never have beaten Taz. You fucking cheated, you did this, you did that, whatever. But me losing to Taz is the one thing that made absolutely no sense in that match of Guilty as Charged. Despite all the weirdness of the match, like with the run-ins that weren't necessary, Meltzer still did give it three stars. I still think it's a good match, but it is weird in spots. It definitely was kind of, like you said, orchestrated to kind of make you look weak, and all you went through all that stuff only to just lose to Taz, who almost looks like, you know, the dominant guy just destroying Bigelow and then running through you, and boy, you know, that was, you know, that was kind of easy for Taz, and then the Candido aspect where it's almost pushing Candido ahead of you and making him a, an opponent for Taz, and then Sabu throws his name in the hat. So are you starting to see, right, as soon as the match ends, the writing on the wall, you're starting to see, like, wow, you know, they, they're really trying to really push me out and, and already have Taz's next opponent in line. No, it was, I, I knew that long before the match, before that match actually took place. In fact, Bob Ryder and... Uh, uh, who's the other writer? Um, his name will pump my head in a second. Uh, they, right as I was getting ready to go to the curtain, through the curtain, I said to them, I said, stay put because i got a hell of a story for you afterwards. And when I came back from the match, because I, I knew how, how it was going to play out, and I knew where Paul was going with it. I knew that pulling up to the building. So when I came back, I told uh, Dave, uh, Dave, Dave, uh, uh, it'll come in a second. I'm so bad with names anymore. But I told Dave Bob Shearer? and Dave. Uh, Dave Shear. Who? Dave Shear. Yes, there you go. Uh, I told Bob and uh, Ryder and Dave Shear, uh, coming back from the curtain, I said, you want a scoop? The scoop is uh, I'm retiring. And they both literally got stunned. You know, I said, I've, I've just had, you know, I never thought what happened tonight would happen to me in ECW. And that's my final taste of politics. Uh, I've had it. And uh, to their credit, Bob Ryder pulled me aside and said, I'm not going to print that. I want you to think about it for the week. And, you know, uh, you know, next week you tell me you're, you're still planning on doing that, I'll print it. But I'm going to wait. And thank God he did. You know, I, I, I obviously was hot. And uh, uh, but then if you look at the trajectory after that, you know, it was pretty much what I would have expected it to do, to be. And the $77,000 grew to $144,000. And, uh, you know, it would have been much better for me to have, have left ECW that night, uh, financially anyway. Now, we, we agree that Taz was great. He's now the ECW champion. Do you see him as the man, like as the next franchise? Do you foresee him being the right guy to beat you for that title to kind of move into a different phase of ECW? 
Yeah, I, I, I thought that Taz was certainly capable of carrying the belt. I, there's no, I had no question about that and still don't to this day. Um, I, my whole thing was with the way the, the, the whole angle was laid out, uh, built up for that entire year. Um, but it was certainly going to be a different taste. You know, I mean, you know, some like Coke, some like Seven Up. Uh, Taz and the franchise characters were very different kind of champions. Uh, you know, the franchise char- character was very much brash, big mouth, uh, you know, the larger than life persona, where Taz was more the, the blue collar, badass, straightforward uh, tank, if you will. Uh, so very different tastes, you know, just depending on what the fans wanted. But I thought that after, you know, the 406-day title reign that maybe the fans were ready for a different flavor. You know, I mean, that's a long time, especially in a company like ECW, um, you know, and, and, and to, to give Paul some credit, as much as I think I can give, uh, is at this stage of the business with it getting so explosively hot, you know, I give Paul credit that he was able to keep this together for as long as he did, because really he, you know, the the finances just weren't there to cover ECW and keep it growing and keep the guys all paid. So what happened at the end of ECW was going to ultimately happen one way or the other sooner or later. You you just couldn't keep robbing Peter to pay Paul and falling further and further behind and then trying to make up on those as you're still trying to make good on these over here. You know, it was astounding that Paul was able to keep that running as long as he did. Um, by rights, we should have been out of business a long, long time before that. The shame of it to me was that with as hot as ECW, we had gotten ECW by that time, was that it was hard for me to believe that we wouldn't have been able to find some backer out there. Uh, Steve Carroll... Uh, just to talk about him for a second, was the worst guy that we could have had involved with us. His guaranteed return on paper, he was the guy that was fronting the money for the pay-per-view. So to be fair to Steve, without him, we wouldn't have been on pay-per-view. Back at that time, it wasn't like today you could do an iPay-per-view and beam it out on the Internet and everybody in the world can get it. Back then, it had to be done through the satellite, and it was a quarter million dollars cash down payment. Not check, not credit card, not on space. There had to be a quarter million dollars paid to the uh, to the satellite companies for the uplink. And of course, you had the production uh, truck for all the mixing and the and the, the actual tele and beaming it to the satellite took place. It was a very expensive endeavor, and Steve Carroll fronted that money. But Steve Carroll's return on his investment over ninety days was thirty five percent, and you know, Vince McMahon on WrestleMania probably makes 35%, but on a typical month-to-month pay-per-view probably doesn't. Uh, 35% over 90 days is an extraordinarily high uh, interest rate to pay, and it sealed the doom of ECW. If we sold out every building and sold, you know, 70,000, 100, even 120,000 buys, which should have been profitable, the ECW, there, there was no way we could pay the 35% over 90 days. So as soon as that deal was signed and delivered, uh, it, it's sort of a dichotomy. It brought us to pay-per-view, 
It guaranteed us getting the pay-per-view, but it also guaranteed our death. There was no way that we could pay that beyond any length of time and keep making it work. Um, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty. Why Paul didn't try to go out and find a better business partner, a, a, you know, somebody to back us, uh, whatever, is beyond me. Maybe by that time he was just burnt out and just had nothing left in the tank. I don't know. But I do know that the 35% all but sealed our doom. Uh, at the November to Remember pay-per-view where as, or Bam Bam dropped the title back to me in Pittsburgh, he and I were both guaranteed uh, $25,000 plus uh, the uh, portion of the pay-per-view. I think it was, oh, God, I have to go back to the paperwork. It was something like 11% split between the two of us, something like that. Plus, I was supposed to get... Um, a dollar ahead for every person. The way the promoters were paid at that time was a dollar ahead up to a thousand, two dollars ahead for everything over a thousand. So with well over five thousand people, I should have about another eleven, twelve thousand dollars coming. Could have been a hell of a nice payday for that. In reality, uh, we both got half of the twenty-five thousand. We got twelve thousand five hundred, and we were told we'd get the rest of it, and never did. And I was never paid as a promoter. I never made a dime off promoting the show. And we never got anything from the paper to pick back. And that was obvious because Steve Carroll was getting 35%. So that was whenever we didn't get that money. And I started snooping around and digging a little bit deeper that I came up to and found that out. And that's when I knew that the, the end was imminent. You know, we, unless we got a backer, unless somebody came with deep pockets, we could not survive long doing that. Crazy to think that Heyman is such a smart guy, wrestling wise, booking wise, but business wise, it seems like didn't always make the right decisions. Is that something that was known amongst the boys that you know he wasn't as business savvy, or is it something that you know maybe you figured out only a few hand picked guys really realized that the business wasn't as strong as, as he may have portrayed it? We all realized it too late. Um, you know, Joey Styles had, had worked in corporate America for, for his entire professional life. Um, you know, I was pretty well versed at business and, uh, you know, educated. Uh, Bubba Ray Dudley was, uh, his, his family, you know, ran a restaurant in New York and, you know, involved in multiple other things. Tommy Dreamer had a good head on his shoulder for business. Taz had a great head on his shoulder for business. Uh, the problem was we were all so nose to the grindstone involved with, not just portraying our characters, but in Taz's case, Taz was involved with running the House of Hardcore uh, and creating T-shirt designs. Uh, Tommy Dreamer was involved with the distribution center and getting all those orders in and out. Uh, me and Bubba were involved with promoting the shows and you know keeping relationships with all the the buildings and uh, uh, venues and uh, TV stations, etc. So, and Joey Styles was involved with, with his real job that he had at that time, plus doing the announcing that took an extraordinary amount of time uh, on, on the, you know, the television sheet. So, you know, unfortunately, none of us knew until far too late that ECW was in the dire straits that it was in. And by the time we all came to that conclusion, the cast had been died. Uh, the die had been cast. You know, we were, we were heading to 
bankruptcy and there was nothing to do to stop it without the huge infusion of cash from somebody to catch up the, the overdue bills for everybody and to, you know, paint a path forward. And there was just nobody coming to the rescue at that point. Now, did you realize at this point when Taz wins the title that, that business-wise it was going downhill? Or do you think that maybe you losing the title also kind of hurt it because, you know, it, it's strong. You got a strong champion. All of a sudden, Taz is champion. There's not as many strong contenders. Um, you're kind of just like floating in the wind. It, it's very kind of odd, his title run. Sometimes he's not in the main event. Sometimes he is. Do you think business-wise it was headed downhill, or do you think that title run was maybe not the best booked, and maybe he didn't do the best with it? Well, I, I don't know. You know, I, I didn't pay real close attention to ECW much after the time that I left there, but I'll say this because at the time that I knew what Paul was doing with me and forcing me to drop the belt, and, uh, you know, I knew that I was week-to-week at best, um, that at any given time Paul could just leave me off which is what he ultimately did at the Poughkeepsie pay-per-view a short time later. Um, you know, telling me that I, if I knew it was good for my, I'd best get my ass to Poughkeepsie and I couldn't bring my driver and, you know, that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, it, it was a, a self-fulfilling prophecy that he knew that was going to force me to, to say, fuck you. And, uh, you know, by the time Taz got the belt, all of those things that I'd mentioned earlier on a business sense, were in place. You know, the uh, the debt was in place. Paul still owed a shitload of people, more than just me, a lot of money. Uh, at very best, I thought that by taking the belt off of me and ultimately pushing me out the door may have bought the company a little bit of time because that's one little chunk of money he doesn't have to worry about paying because I never harbored the belief that I would get that money. Uh, so, you know, there's $144,000 wiped off the books, maybe that bought the company a couple weeks or months. Um, but, you know, to be fair to Taz, by the time he got the belt, the, the company was hobbled and was, was heading towards its imminent demise. Uh, it was nothing that Taz did or didn't do that brought that on. Um, and, and from a booking standpoint, I, I also think that, you know, and, and going back and looking at the way Paul booked from that point forward, I saw a lot, especially as they were heading into the TNN, after I'd left and they were heading towards the TNN deal, it looked to me as though Paul had, uh, his creativity had dried up. You know, I, I used to go back and, and sit back and marvel, watching Paul sit back and this evil genius create these ideas uh, that were stunningly uh, compelling to watch. And when I was watching ECW after I left, I didn't watch it a lot, but I turned it on here and there and, you know, follow along to the sheets and things. It seemed to me to be a rehash of a lot of the same stuff. If you go back and look at, uh, you know, Simon Diamond, who I thought was an incredibly good interview, promo. Uh, He's wearing black and gold um, robes. He's going sort of cerebral-type promos, uh, very reminiscent to the franchise promos. You had Rob Van Dam going out and doing, you know, incredibly athletic, crazy dives. And you might almost say homicidal, suicidal, genocidal, like Sabu. You had uh, 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 Rhino, you know, 
the, the sort of tank uh, as the the updated version of Taz. It, it was sort of this, um, like looking at that version of ECW at that time heading into TNN, it was like looking at a mirror image of ECW from five years before, uh, yet without those guys. And the ECW fans, if they were nothing else, they were incredibly loyal, passionately loyal. So for somebody to go in and suddenly start trying to be the next franchise or the next Taz or the next Sabu, nothing against the guys that were doing it, but I think the fans took umbrage with that. And it just lacked the creative spark that Paul was so well known for. And, uh, you know, and then the financial side we talked about, you know, so you add those two things together, the lack of creativity, the rehashing of, of ideas and characters, and then the financial stuff that we talked about. And ECW was on its last legs. It was on uh, life support. And it was just a question of when somebody turned off the life support. Definitely financial problems. Definitely some booking problems as well. But were you aware that Bam Bam at this point was headed to WCW? Yeah. Yeah, I knew he had been talking with them. Um, I can't remember exactly how soon after that he left. But, yeah, Scott, me, Scott, and, and Chris, we, we shared most business decisions. You know, we, were, we worked very well together, not just in the ring. You know, for instance, the merchandising. Um, rather than try to every week figure out, well, you know, this is what the stuff we sold cost and split three ways that's this much, and this is how much we made split three ways minus what it cost. Instead of doing that, we would say, okay, uh, Chris Candido, it's your turn to buy T-shirts. And so Chris would go out and buy two or three or four gross of shirts. And as those shirts sold, Chris would make the money from those shirts. Next, it might be Bam Bam. Then Bam Bam would buy three or four gross. And when they sold, he would make that money back. It wasn't a, a time frame thing. It was... When the shirts are gone, if you sell them all in one night, then tomorrow it's the next guy's turn. If it takes a month, then 31 days from now it's the next guy's turn. But we were very fair-minded that way, and we always shared those things on a business level. And Bam Bam had been pretty open that he wasn't happy in the end of ECW. At one time he told me that Paul Heyman told him his salary was killing him, um, which would play right into what we had spoken about earlier with the finances. Um, you know, Bam Bam was worth every cent that he was making. And yet, you know, to hear that from your boss, your salary is killing me, makes you feel underappreciated and unappreciated. And uh, I'm sure Bam Bam, as, as, you know, as well-known, world-renowned as he was, wasn't lacking any offers. So, uh, yeah, I, I knew that Scott was leaving. I didn't know specifically when he was leaving, but I knew he was negotiating uh, with Eric and that he would be leaving at some point. The only reason I thought that he may not go is that at the last minute, at the 11th hour, maybe Paul Heyman will say, hey, here's a bunch of money to stay. Um, you know, because, again, at that point, we none of us knew how really badly the company was doing financially. We knew it wasn't on great, great ground, but we didn't think it was, you know, death was imminent. And, you know, so I think Bam Bam's leaving at that point once he had told us that he was talking with Eric Bischoff in WCW, that it was imminent that he would be leaving. And, uh, you know, it just, 
At that point, you realize the triple threat thing is done. You can't really do another incarnation of it. Uh, you know, just everything seemed to be heading southward, you know, and, and uh, you can't place the blame on any one person other than Paul Heyman that he was the person that was, you know, all that happened, you know, with as much praise as you can give him for keeping the company together through all of that. Uh, ultimately, somebody has to be held accountable for what happened because the, the crazy part about it is that ECW, after all those years of struggling in buildings like Flagstaff and Jim Thorpe and, uh, you know, smaller buildings and venues around the Philadelphia area, suddenly we're, we're wrestling, in, you know, at the Golden Dome in Pittsburgh and, you know, up, you know the Odium in Chicago and, you know, uh, the Bruce, the Burt Flickinger Center in Buffalo and drawing three, four, five thousand people, you know, paying upwards of a hundred, hundred and twenty-five dollars for front row seats, and uh, you know, the, at that point, the money was there; it was coming in. Um, but none of us knew how badly the company had hemorrhaged on the backside, and then those inane deals with uh, Steve Carroll and the pay-per-view and uh, you know, payback, and then the acclaim deal was. Uh, was the coup de grace, you know, with, with the first uh, deal, uh, we had no leverage and Paul gave them the rights to the, to the, uh, first ECW video game for what I would have considered to be pennies. And in that first week they sold some crazy number at forty nine ninety nine a pop thousands and thousands of that game. And a short time later, Paul granted them the, you know, sold them the rights to the second one for uh, uh, not much more than he sold them the rights for the first one. And uh, I always thought that was like, like one of those, what the fuck would you, why would you do that? And, you know, it was those kind of deals, you know, that, that ultimately led to ECW's uh, downfall. You know, there was no way we could keep hemorrhaging money the way that we were guaranteeing Steve Carroll that kind of guaranteed payback on the pay-per-views and then making shitty business deals like that with the claim and keep the company going. Just impossible. As far as in the ring and in front of the camera, obviously there's so much stuff going behind this. Behind the scenes is crazy. But in in the ring, maybe Dean Douglas would might be better for this one, but what, what would you rate Taz if you had to give him a grade not only as a champion, but what would you rate him promo, in, you know, in ring, uh, charisma, like what, what, like what, basically, what kind of rating would you give to the uh, Taster? In his character, I, I, I thought he was a home run. You know, I mean, you had a guy that was, you know, when when Taz later went to the WWF, uh, we had spoken right around the time shortly after he had the, I think it was a cage match with. Uh, Kurt Angle. That was a really damn good match. And he called me and told me that Vince was taking him out of ring and moving him to an announcer because he told me that Vince told him, I just don't buy the gimmick. You know, I, I just don't believe, you know, that you're a badass. And I laughed. I thought, I can honestly say I never once had a fan anywhere in any ECW building come to me and say, I can't believe you're backpedaling from a guy that's 5'9", 5'10", whatever he is. Uh, or I can't believe the triple threat backed down. Or I can't believe Bam Bam Bigelow lost to Taz. To the contrary, those 
all of those things always pop the house. You know, Taz's promos, again, very different style than franchise, you know, given a, you know, a, you know, a recounting and a retelling and a, you know, a, a, a point by point uh, execution verbally, you know, Taz will come out there and give you that. I'm going to kick your fucking ass. I'm going to dump you on your head. And there ain't a fucking thing you can do about it. Uh, and then the times that Taz will throw humor into his promos, like the time with the uh, talking about the easy pass to Bam Bam. So it makes sure Bam Bam could make it into town. Okay. Uh, you know, those were things that were, that for the Taz character worked. If Shane Douglas tried to do that in a promo, it probably wouldn't have worked. It would have come off as glib and, and silly. But for Taz to do it, you know, it just came across as that, that badass, you know, drawing the line and making his point and being funny in the few places he, he wanted to be funny in. Uh, I was always a fan of the Taz character. I thought that the Taz character was, for me, working with him. Um, it was so easy to play off of because he was so explosive and he was so capable on the mat, um, you know, that you, I couldn't go in there and just, you know, outwork him on the mat. I could challenge him and he would challenge me back, but it was, that was, it was invigorating to do that. It wasn't like, Oh shit, he's better than me or I'm better than him. Uh, it was one of those things that you need to go into the ring and have that kind of a series on, on the mat when there's a lot of guys that you can't do that with, you know, that uh, after a couple of reversals, they're out of, they're out of their, you know, element. And, you know, Taz, I knew was very well versed at that. And because he had that low center of gravity, you know, his, his hips being, uh, you, you know, so much lower, you know, we used to always make fun of Taz about his height and stuff, but it really gave him an advantage because he was so thick and stalking at his big, powerful 30 inch legs and, uh, thighs and that, you know, his hips being so low. Watch Taz when you watch a playback of any of his matches. Watch when he executes any of those suplexes and how he gets, you know, it's absolutely perfect execution up on the balls, of, you know, up to the, on his toes. Uh, you know, complete flexion at his hips and back. Uh, explosive at the outset of the move. Everything was perfect. Uh, in the way that he executed those. And for a heel like me that could run my mouth, uh, I knew that all I had to do in any spot that we were going in the ring was just culminate with one of those. Just, I'm going to clothesline, you hit me with the, you know, the T-bone uh, or whatever. Um, and, and, it, and it worked. So as I think the worst thing that Paul could have done at the time, uh, taking the belt off me, would have been to put it on another light character. You know, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a big mouth heel or a, you know, a strong promo guy because it would have been vanilla, French vanilla, you know, two similar styles. Taz was like the anti-franchise. He was uh, cocksure of himself, uh, very different. Shane Douglas, the franchise character, came off as cerebral and educated. Taz came off like a kid from the streets, uh, you know, it, to me, it worked. You know, that, from my personal opinion, it worked. And I, and I thought he was a solid champion. Very strange that there's no real major rematch between you and Taz. There was obviously the rematch at the arena you're talking about. It was at ECW House Party 99, which was kind of just not a, you know, very well advertised or a big show or anything like that. Was there 
you know, a real reason given to you why there was no major rematch? I mean, this was a 406-day title reign, the longest in the history. This was the franchise of ECW losing the title to now the quote-unquote big star, you know, the guy who's arguably going to be the most over in the company very, very soon. What was the reason or was there any reason given to you why there was no major rematch between you two? Never a reason given to me, but I, I'm sure, you know, that, that, again, it goes back to the money that I was owed. You know, once you've made the decision to move past the staff, I make the decision to move past gone, and especially when I use a lot of money. You're no longer in my thinking when it comes to my future angles or matches because I've already moved beyond you. I've already in my head precluded I'm going to pay you the money that you owed. So let's keep moving forward. So at some point, I'm going to start shrinking you as far as stature in the company and to the point that you get the point you leave. And it wasn't, I can't remember the specific time, so I can go back and look. But I remember there was a, a show at the uh, uh, Elks Lodge, Madhouse And Tommy Rogers and Sid both showed up. And they walked in and went back and talked to Paul. And you know, there was a lot of buzz around the building. They're here to get the money. They were a lot of money, too. And a short while later, they left with a great big wad of cash, both. And, uh, you know, it, it was clear they were gone for good. And, and I was happy to see them get their money. But it told me that if they got their money, that means that there's a lot less money for Paul to make payment on the checks this week. So I told my driver, instead of flying home the next day, we were going to get a hotel room, and I was going to stop by the bank branch and cash that check. Because if we waited for anybody else to cash in the bank at home, there, there would definitely not be enough money. Like Sid and, and, and uh, Tommy Rogers that night in cash. So when I got to the building the next Monday morning uh, to the bank branch, uh, the lady excused up the girl and you know, asked her if there was enough money to cover the check, and she said that there was. And uh, when I tried to cash it, something came up on the screen she had to get a manager. And the manager came back and that uh, well, I'm going to call Mr. Hayman to clear that. And I finally play hardball with him. I said, is, is this, this bank, that's the routing number, I said, is that this bank? Uh, and is this account in this bank? And is there enough money in this account to cover this check? If so, then cash it. If not, then I need to make sure I get your full name because when I see this branch for failing to make good on this, with legal tender, uh, a check on the account that has money in it, then, you know, the day on the check was proper and everything, I, and he did the right thing. Against Paul Heyman told her to in no way, shape, or form pass that check. I heard him on the phone say that, that she called him. I could hear his voice. And that's when I threatened her, and he went ahead and passed the check. Uh, and I knew at that point probably done it easy stuff. And, and I didn't care. You know, it was, uh, as long as I got that last bit of money and I screwed Paul back somewhat, that's all I cared about was, you know, getting out of their team as best I could and, you know, count $144,000 of experience. 
absolutely crazy the amount of money you're owed and the poor business practices at that point. But, you know, there's no major rematch between you guys. Obviously, Candido kind of fills the void for you as far as wrestling tads on the big shows. You know, the Cyber Slams, the Hardcore Heavens, you get the Candido Taz match, and you're kind of eventually slowly, you know, working your way out. Do you remember, because your last show was on April 15th of 99 for ECW, do you remember where your last show was? Oh, no. I remember I was slated to be on the Poughkeepsie pay-per-view. I forget what the name of it was. And didn't make it because that was the day of the Break the Barrier show that Court Bauer had in the ECW arena. And, uh... But I don't remember the previous weekend where we were. Where was it? What, well, what, my, well, just what I just said. Was it New York? Uh, Elk Lodge? No. Your hometown, Pittsburgh, PA. Pittsburgh was my last shot? Yep. At what April show? 15, April 15th. Just a house show. April 15th, 99. Where? At the, at the Golden Dome? I have to double check. I was actually trying to figure out where in Pittsburgh you guys actually um, had, you know, did house shows and stuff because Golden Dome was more for uh, bigger shows, no, for ECW? No, we Golden Dome was our big show Saturday night. We would typically do Ross Draver on Friday night. Oh, yeah, yep, which was yep. Golden Dome, yeah, April 15th. Golden Dome, you beat just incredible, yep. Wow. I have no recollection of that. None whatsoever. Isn't that That's kind of ironic? Thought, yeah. Yeah, very ironic because I would have thought, just based off that story I told earlier, because I know that when I left that bank branch that I, that I was done, so I don't know if I didn't wrestle on those shows later, just showed up there or what, but I remember vividly being at, at the Elks Lodge show when uh, I'm sure you can look it up and find the, the dates on when uh, Tommy Rogers and Sid went to uh, Elks Lodge and got their money and, and they were done. Um, I'd be curious to see. I've, I've looked it up tomorrow to see was that before or after those, that, that Pittsburgh show because I have, and I feel bad saying there's nothing against CJ, I, I have zero recollection of that match in my head. April yeah, 1999. PJ said, uh, when I spoke to him just a while ago about it, but he didn't really remember your last CW match. He just knew that it was against you and him at it. He didn't remember any real facts about it. But it's interesting that, and kind of ironic, your last ever ECW show was at Pittsburgh. So I was just curious. I guess it's not true. I was almost going to ask you if, if that was on purpose, that you wanted your last ever shot to be in Pittsburgh. No. But I guess that's just purely coincidental. Yeah, yeah, absolutely coincidental because I would have never wanted my last match to be there. Um, and I'm also surprised that he would have put me over on PJ. That, you know, with me leaving, why would you put me over on a kid, that a damn good kid, that's, that you're building into your next level of stars? You know, it, uh, it doesn't make much sense. I have to go back and review that and try to see if I can pull any of the you know, shake out any of the cobwebs and, and pull some of that out because I 
that is absolute news to me. I, I would have thought that my last night for uh, ECW would have been after that Elks Lodge. And I'm guessing they're, 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 the only thing that makes sense to me is that I must not have been booked on that show in Elks uh, Lodge. I must have just showed up there and then, you know, got a check or something, which sort of scratched in the back of my brain as a possibility. Uh, you know, at that time, it was, it was time to get out of there. You know, it was a very bad time for me because I, I like I said earlier in, in this podcast, I fervently felt and still do believe that the one thing I did not deserve was to get screwed by that company financially, spot-wise, whatever. Um, I was certainly professional enough that had Paul come to me and said, hey, I've done all I can with you, um, let's start to segue you out of the company and maybe bring you back in a year or two, I would have been more than fine with that to figure out a way to, to wrap up that, that first one of the character and move on. Um, but it's funny because I remember at one show in Poughkeepsie, um, not that last show, I didn't make it to Poughkeepsie, but uh, in Poughkeepsie, which must have been the, 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 the last Poughkeepsie show before that one that I was supposed to be at, Paul pulled me over. There's a, you know, the side of the building where the wrestling uh, venue is, and then it's connected, and there's an ice arena, hockey arena on the other side. And Paul pulled me over uh, between, there's a hallway between the two venues. And he said to me, why don't you trust me? <laughs> and I laughed. I said, well, maybe it's the $144,000 you owe me. And he said to me, I swear to you, Shane, on my father's eyesight, you will get every penny that you're owed. And, you know, in hindsight, I used to like tell a joke and say, you know, I sure hope his dad didn't go blind afterwards, you know, because I'd have felt <laughs> guilty for that. But uh, I'll never forget that, that conversation with Paul. And just because I know the business as well as I know it and have learned under people like Dusty Rhodes and Bill Watts and... Ole Anderson and other guys that have that were, you know, not so slow to use their own words to get themselves out of a bond. Uh, I knew what Paul would say. You know that him saying you're going to get a penny road means you're not going to see a dime. Uh, you know, and I knew that. And so, you know, I, I said something to Paul at the time when he made that comment. And I said, "Well, I sure hope your dad's eyesight's okay down the road or something." You know, uh, but. You know, it, it was couldn't be upset with my attitude towards him as he was doing these things to me and my character because I was the guy that was owed a lot of money. And, you know, I had done right by ECW my entire time there. Um, you know, I had done everything I could to help build the company, to help build the people I worked with. Um and it was a two-way street. I also had the luxury of working with some very talented men and women. Uh, but the loyalty that I had ex- extended to ECW, including in dropping the belt, like I said, I could have taken that and left and negotiated with Eric Bischoff or Vince McMahon to pay me the highest bidder to drop the belt to whoever they want me to drop the belt at their company and uh, didn't do that. And the reason I didn't was my loyalty to ECW. Um I maintained then, and I still maintain to this day, I did not deserve to get screwed at the end of my run in ECW. Doesn't surprise me, though. That's, that's the way the wrestling business has always been run. Um, but it, it 
did surprise me a little bit in the sense that I couldn't do that to somebody else. If, you know, JP was loyal to me like that for as long as I had been to ECW, I couldn't, I would figure out some way to pay you, even if it was an extended payment plan or something. I wouldn't lie to you and I wouldn't screw you. Um, but, you know, to each his own. Everybody, you know, we all have to put our head on the pillow at night and sleep. Uh, I sleep very well at night. Um, and I've heard psychopaths can, too. <laughs> you, obviously, being in Pittsburgh, PA, for 1599 was your last match before heading to WCW. You and Taz would never actually square off again in 2000 or there around. Taz ends up back or two, you know, making his debut in the WWF as Taz with two Z's, kind of killing it just a, a little bit uh, as far as the the mystique. But with you, which was interesting to me, looking at it, did you know it was your final days leading up to that? Obviously, you're, you didn't remember the exact Pittsburgh show, but did you know that those were the last days? Is there a contract? Is there a handshake? Or you know, what is going on that you know that you're winding down, but for some reason? not losing to PJ, not losing to just incredible at all on the way out. My, well, I, I knew dropping the belt to Taz that my time was, was running short. You know, um, now if, if I'm Paul Heyman, I, I'll use Shane Douglas as long as Shane Douglas keeps showing up and I can keep bouncing checks to him. I'll use him for five years. If he'll take bounce checks for five years. Um, so, you know, it, it's, uh, I knew dropping the belt to Taz that I was on borrowed time. Uh, it was just a matter of time before I was either let go, squeezed out, uh, made to lose my temper and walk out. Um, but I knew time was imminent at that point. And so I, I, oddly enough, as I recall, after dropping the belt to Taz, like the next weekend at the ECW arena, I, almost, I had a great time because I showed up and there was no pressure at all. If I had a shit match, it didn't matter. If I had a great match, it didn't matter. Uh, if I went out and killed myself, it didn't matter. Uh, and it was sort of freeing in that sense that, uh, you know, because as, when you're a champion, like I, I always tell kids this in my seminars, you know, it's one thing to want to build an independent company. But when you're working for a company that's contingent on drawing day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, getting a belt takes on a lot of responsibility and that responsibility can get crushing after a while because you know that everybody on that undercard is looking to, if you walk in the building's only two thirds full, you know, that half the guys in that dressing room are 10% or 5% or whoever, whatever the number, somebody in that dressing room is going, shit, Shane ain't drawing anymore, you know? And, you know, so there was a lot of pressure with that. And then just with the, the uh, the dealings of being a champion, you know, the constant radio phone in interviews, the newspaper interviews, the having to fly into town early a day or two or three early to take care of a lot of that stuff. You know, your time really was pegged out, you know, and it all revolved around that title. When I went to the ECW ring the next week, uh, I first hated to cut my hair. Uh, Paul had told me one time earlier that, he forbade me from ever cutting my hair. You know, said, this is what I want my franchise to look like. And he also said he never wanted me to show up at the building 
dressed up like Ric Flair. Uh, he wanted Shane Douglas to be the, the anti-Flair. And uh, so the next week I showed him my haircut, wearing a fedora, you know, a shirt and tie. <laughs> you know, just, just me being an asshole, being me, you know. And uh, But I remember that, you know, that, like there was no pressure. It was almost like hanging out with your buddies and let's go have fun. You know, it, uh, there was no pressure on me whatsoever. And, but I knew that as soon as I dropped that belt of Taz of guilty as charged, that the end of the franchise in ECW, one way or the other, was coming to an end much sooner than later. And it was just a question of when I decided to leave, when Paul decided to squeeze me out. Uh, one way or the other, it was going to lead to that. And, you know, barring Paul hitting the lotto and, and making good on what the money that he owed me, I knew that that was imminent. There was no way to avert that. I could not just say to Paul, hey, don't worry about the 144000 you owe me. Let's start fresh. I couldn't afford to do that at the time. So uh, I knew my time was imminent there. And but all of that time, I'm, I'm guessing, I, I vividly remember the ECW arena match the next week and the carefree attitude that I had in the building and the, and the no pressure. I'm guessing it was probably the same at every event that I wrestled for ECW, no matter how many it was after that. I don't think it was many. Um, but I'm sure I went there with the, hey, fucking attitude. You know, let's, I'm going to have fun, and that's going to be the end of it. Well, you definitely earned that fun. You definitely earned uh, the, the ability to kind of take the load off after that long title reign and after that epic build that you guys had. And this has been... An amazing, amazing look into that event, Guilty as Charged 99. And if anybody wants to go and check it out, please go seek it out on a certain network uh, that will have it on there. Uh, but if you want to find it in its original form with all the great theme music, I, I implore you to do that too. But, you know, if you look back at it now, and this is like, you know, when we do our two-man power trip interviews, we always end it like very introspectively. But if you look back on your thoughts then, versus your thoughts now looking back. Is there any difference in how it all went down or how you would have done it, or do you still kind of stay steadfast in your belief of what was going down at then was the right thing for you, right thing for the company, and I guess whatever Paul's stance was uh, was the right thing for him? Yeah, I, I, I've always said in my career, uh, Chad, that for better or for worse, everything I've said in my career I stand behind, everything I've done in my career I stand behind. Uh, looking back, I can't see anything today if I could step back into that time that I would have done differently. Um, after all, it wasn't as though I owed Paul a bunch of money and was trying to figure out a way not to pay him the money. Um, it just was impossible at that time. I had a family. I had a mortgage. Uh, we were trying to start to have kids at the time. And I, the one thing I couldn't afford to do or, or would do is tell my wife, hey, we're going to take a bite on this $144,000 and we'll start fresh. Because truth be known, even had I done that, had I been that stupid, you know, Paul, if you know Paul well enough, you know that once Paul makes up his mind to go in a certain direction, he's going to go in that direction, good, bad, or ugly. And so, like I said to JP a second ago, the the fact that I dropped that title uh, to Taz after that year buildup, after it was obvious to me that Paul had uh, the intention of putting me over, and then suddenly come up with that idea last minute, uh, spelled the end of the franchise character. There was no way to come off of that. Even if I had taken a few months off and came back, how can you really rebuild this guy? Come back and say, 
well, you know, those promos you do were okay, but, you know, after all, you did get beat, and you got punked out for a year and backpedaled for a year. It it just, the the character itself wouldn't have worked. What made the franchise character work over all that time was that he had that big mouth, and his his ass could go out and cash those checks. You know, it's like Muhammad Ali. You, You wanted to see Muhammad Ali get his head knocked off every time he fought, and every time he won, you wanted to see him even get beat more the next time, but he was that good. That was the franchise character in ECW was that, yeah, he said a lot of things and backed them up in the ring. Whatever character was he was working with, it was typically made compelling. Um, I had great people to work with. Paul built great television around it, and all things were firing on all cylinders. But I can't say that there's anything looking back today in 2018 looking back and saying, well, had I done this or that, it might have been different. Um, The only thing I would have done differently looking back, knowing what I know today, is I would never have let it get to that point. I would never have let it get past, you know, five or ten thousand dollars, let alone seventy seven or you know, ultimately hundred and forty four thousand. Uh, yeah, unfathomable amount of money. And uh it's unfortunate that it had to go down that way. But just reliving this with you, I mean it's been as a fan to watch it back then was awesome, but to relive it in this detail was uh, absolutely spectacular. My credit to my partner for his uh, just absolutely uh, thorough, I guess you could say, research and, and pulling some facts and really digging deep. And uh, Shane, of course, as always, you know, thanks to you for opening up the vault and uh, and discussing it in such great detail because this is a another one of these benchmark uh, moments in your career that we get to uh, relive with you on the show, and it's truly an honor. So thank you so much for uh, being able to kind of dig back in the old franchise uh, records there and uh, and give us some extreme detail. And dust off the cobwebs. That's, it's, I love doing these shows with you guys because you said JP and you guys do such, such great research, and, and it allows me to, to relive some, a, lot of, a lot of fun memories, even though they weren't all, in, in this particular case, you know, positive. In hindsight, looking back at them, I'm still proud of what we did there. And so it, it's it's fun to recount them and relive them. Yes, so much fun. And, uh, you know, we're we're even kind of glancing over it. We usually end it with an Ask Franchise Anything, but we definitely incorporated some of those questions into what was uh, built in the uh, the arc of this entire show. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier as well at the top of the show, we have a huge weekend coming up, and Shane, you'll be stepping back into the arena this Saturday, uh, excuse me, this Friday night, stepping through uh, the ropes, a huge House of Hardcore event. Now, you, te- you said the load was let off a little bit after you dropped the title. Now, there's going to be a title on your side of the ring on uh, Friday night. So if you don't mind, could you give us a preview of House of Hardcore? You're looking forward to uh, teaming with Joey and Nick and uh, kind of lighting it up one more time uh, in the ECW arena. Absolutely. Look, I, I mean, I, Joey Mercury and Nick Aldis, I mean, they're, they're, they are the franchises of the business today. They're the best the business has to offer. And the House of Hardcore, ironically, in the building ECW was built in, uh, is, is creating what I consider to be some of the most compelling wrestling today. So it's sort of funny that, or ironic, not funny, but that all these years later, that were culminating back in that same building. All all paths lead to the same place. And I can promise you this, that on Friday night, we will be doing, uh, with what we have in mind to do, 
something that's very reminiscent of ECW and something that is very reminiscent of the franchise and some of the, you know, the iconic things that the franchise did in that building. Uh, and let's face it, like anytime I have two studs standing next to me, be it Candido or Bam Bam or Joey Mercury and Nick Aldis, uh, we have pretty big things in store for Friday night, and I can't wait. Yeah, and mentioning Bam Bam there, and we mentioned him a couple times throughout, I just got to say that off the top of the show, the show is dedicated to Bam Bam Bigelow, who passed away uh, almost to the day that we're recording this uh, in 2007. So I know, Shane, it's always a somber anniversary, and there was uh, a lot of people spreading a lot of love for Bam Bam this past weekend on uh, social media, which was very cool to see. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, not a fun anniversary, but still, we're going to honor Bam Bam and dedicate this show to him. Very cool. Yeah, Bam Bam's, uh, you know, Bam Bam and Chris, like I said on Twitter earlier today, both of them gone way, way too soon. And I don't know if it was just ironic or what, but, you know, there were multiple questions online today about Roddy Piper, about Balls Mahoney, about Axel Rotten, about Bam Bam and Candido. And it just was this... You know, sort of reliving of these of the negative things, and you know, so for me, after this much time, you know, it's uh, in my head just to keep it sort of balanced. I, I just have the, all those guys booked somewhere else. They're booked in Japan. Uh, they're booked somewhere else, not not where I am, uh, because it just gets to be a downer. You know that that, that these guys have been gone that long, uh, but very cool to me as their friend and brother to see that that many people still remember them. Now, this long 10, uh, 10 plus, he won 11 years for Bam Bam, and what, 16 years, or wait, no, uh, 13 years for uh, Candido, uh, that you know, the people still remember them, still hold them in such reverence. Uh, to me, that's, that's about as cool a, a, an epitaph as anybody can get. Absolutely, and don't forget Bam Bam, my kayfabe uncle. So we don't uh, <laughs> we don't want to <laughs> let that one. We don't want to let that slide. But as we wrap it up here, got to give the plugs. If you want to send in questions for Shane, of course, send them to the triple threat pod at gmail dot com. Again, it's the triple threat pod at gmail dot com. The queen of the queen of extreme Francine helped us uh, bulk up on questions last week. So um, curious to see what this is going to bring out. After you digest this look back at Guilty as Charged 99, and if you want to reach out to Shane, let him know what you thought, you can do that at the Franchise SD. If you want to hit up John and myself, it's at Two Man Power Trip. And if you want to also tag the show Twitter page, it is at the three, number three, Threat Pod. Again, it's at the three Threat Pod. And again, this has just been an amazing. Amazing fun episode, and I forgot to mention the PWT's store with the official T-shirts. Hopefully uh, we can see a couple this weekend. I know I'll be wearing mine. John, you'll be wearing yours as we're at Icons of Wrestling Saturday with Shane, with the four horsemen, including Shane's buddy Ric Flair in the ECW arena, which is, whew, that's just a little... <laughs> it's a little, it's a little <laughs> off-putting, uh, a little weird, but uh, nonetheless... He'll be there. Sting will be there. I mean, I just saw Booker T was just announced. I mean, another huge, huge day of icons of wrestling uh, Saturday at the ECW Arena. So I guess, uh, you know, when I mentioned TMPTCon, I mean, we have so much plugs here now. TMPTCon, we announced Kevin Nash earlier this week. 
So please join us in May down in Richmond, Virginia. Go to tmptofwrestling.com for TMPTCon info as well as the Triple Threat podcast page. And that is enough out of me, Shane. I'm going to hand it over to you. I already said where we're all going to be this weekend, but please, if you don't mind, take us out in the way the franchise can, which is on to episode number 33 next week. 33 coming next week. Appreciate everybody tuning in to let me relive this uh, epic moment in ECW history. Appreciate you being here. That sure as hell wouldn't want to have to franchise your ass. See you next week. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.